By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. The problem I think is when having sex like a man is seen as a default setting because it doesn't suit the interests of most women. If we're saying that something that suits the interests of let's say 5% of women should be the norm, that inevitably is going to mean that 95% are nudged by shame by social pressure. Now this episode is a little bit different from our usual programming because this is an interview between me and Louise Perry, who's the author of the book The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. The book in general is intended as a critique of liberal feminism and sometimes criticised by conservatives and Christians for not being conservative and Christian enough. Now, before we roll the interview, it's worth sharing a bit of a trigger warning around this in that we do discuss topics around sex and sexuality in a pretty graphic way. And we also talk about issues including sexual assault and rape and consent. And so hopefully that's fair warning if you'd rather not listen to this episode. I work for a campaign group called We Can't Consent to This. What we do is we document cases where UK women have been killed and their killers have claimed in court that they consented to the violence which led to their deaths. So like the sex game gone wrong. I think that the focus on consent as the sole framework for determining whether or not sexual behaviour is good or bad is completely inadequate. There's so much grey area between good sex and consensual sex. All right, Louise, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Hello. This is a very interesting book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. How has it been doing, I guess, the the, the media and publicity tour of the book? Because it's, I guess, a particularly sometimes controversial topic. Yeah, it's been better than I thought, you know. I knew while I was writing it that it was controversial. Um, that was kind of the idea. But I would say the response has been 90 to 95% positive. Okay which was much higher than I thought. What's the 5 to 10% like? Like what 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 sort of... What's yeah. interesting is that it comes from every possible angle, which I think, I mean, I think suggests I'm at least being original, even if I'm not right. So I mean, so the book in general is, a, is, is intended as a critique of liberal feminism. So obviously liberal feminists, you know, reiterate their point fine. That was, that's to be expected. I'm sometimes criticized by... Um, conservatives and Christians for not being conservative and Christian enough okay. because I have a chapter in there that makes the case for marriage but then I also have a whole bunch of other chapters that, that they don't like as much I have been criticized by um, radical feminists and some other feminists for being too keen on evolutionary psychology so completely different groups all have a problem with the book which I think is probably a good sign yeah uh, so um up until I read this, I did not really realize that like uh, liberal feminists and like radical feminists and sex positive and negative feminist was was like a thing. Yeah. Um, what do these kind of terms mean? What's extra confusing is everyone calls themselves different things. Feminism is like an inf infamously factional movement. Um, I write about liberal feminism in the book, but that's a term I chose to use, even though people would probably be more likely to describe themselves as intersectional feminists. I mean, liberal feminism is basically the feminism of like Cosmo, Emma Watson. Okay, it's what you'll you'll most commonly come across in the Guardian. Okay, it's it's like the it's like the mainstream position nowadays. The main idea behind liberal feminism is basically that giving women freedom and giving women choice is the most important thing, and that the what what was wrong about the past, the pre feminist age, was that women didn't have their choices constrained. And post-1960s, we've seen this sort of explosion of freedom, and that's a great thing. 
which I disagree with. Okay. <laughs> Radical feminism is a is faded away a little bit. It was more prominent in the 70s and 80s. And that is, um, as the name suggests, a more radical version of feminism, which says that um, women are an oppressed class. Like it's like a it's, it's like a Marxist framework where women and men are different classes and men necessarily oppress women. I used to be much more sympathetic to radical feminism. I've moved away from it somewhat. Um, but yeah, these are these are factions who are at each other's throats. Okay, and a lot and have been for a long time. A sex positive and sex negative. Like, what? What is? How does that tie into? So, this? sex positive liberal feminists, I think, are pretty much always sex positive. And what does sex positive mean? So, the the kind of steel man of sex positivism is it, is it's the idea that there's nothing inherently shameful about sex. That a lot of particularly Christian ideas about sex are very oppressive, and they. They, you know, they make people miserable, um, and that actually take having a kind of generally positive regard towards sex and saying that look, as long as you consent, as long as people are all adults and whatever, then what's the problem? Yeah. I think the problem with the sex positive view is it shades very, very easily from that general. We should be generally positive yeah, sounds, towards sounds it. It sounds reasonable. lovely, it right? Sounds very nice, yeah. The problem is that it shades very easily into actually being into these things actually becoming almost compulsory. So that we we go from saying women should be allowed to have one night stands. There's nothing wrong necessarily with having one night stands. Fine. I think that anyone who's brought up in a vaguely liberal environment is going to agree with that. But then I think that the the point that we've come to now is that actually not having one night stands is weird. Going through a period of your life of having one night stands as a route towards a monogamous relationship, which is what most women say they want, what most men actually also say they want eventually, is almost like running the gauntlet. And I think that what sex positive feminism does in practice, even if not in theory, is it provides provides cover for a culture that is actually very coercive because we are all networked individuals. We all make choices in context. We're influenced by other people. And I think particularly when it comes to sex, because sex necessarily is something you do with other people. So you're going to be influenced by everyone else. And I think to say that to focus only on the individual yeah. and to think only about our own choices in isolation and the idea that we should you know, regard all those choices positively, I think massively neglects the ways in which our choices are constrained in practice. What do you mean by the ways in which our choices are constrained in practice? So one example would be if you pre the pill, right? The standard uh, route for young women, particularly if you come from a kind of respectable background, let's say, is not to have sex before marriage. Sure. That's the default, mm. you know. And it means if you, you know, we talk to women who grew up in that era, they'll say, you know, yes, of course, there were instances where that didn't happen, teenagers being as they are. But equally, it was it was the assumed thing. And if you, you know, went on a date with a boy or whatever, he knew that that was he knew that was a hard limit. You didn't have to negotiate on it. Mm. Whereas now, I'd say that that has flipped. And now the assumption is that you're put out, not necessarily on a first date, although increasingly, you know, straight away. And and the default therefore becomes a yes. Okay. And that's the site at which you have to negotiate. And often, you know, it's very difficult because you're doing that within the context of you don't want to be frigid, you don't want to be a prude, you don't want to lose social status. And so I think to say that you have a choice, yeah, you do, of course, we all have choices, we all have free will. But if you're in a culture that says that putting out on a first date is normal, teenagers in particular care a lot about being normal. And that is the site at which our choices are constrained. 
So, so it sounds like, so uh, I mean, and please correct me if this is not a fair summary of, um, of of your position. But it sounds like you're saying that in an in an absolutely dream world, of course, we would have uh, we would have uh, we wouldn't be using the uh, the weapon of shame against uh, women or men or or anyone to constrain their behavior, and people will do what they want in a consensual fashion, and everything is all fine and dandy because actually. People are, as you know, uh, Ayala was saying in, in the debate you had with her, checking in with themselves in isolation and saying, "How do I personally feel about this?" There are some women who will enjoy having sex with multiple partners, some women who won't, and everything all goes because society is non-judgmental. But it sounds like you're saying in the real world, those kind of uh, that that kind of dream world doesn't really exist. Not only that, but I think the war on shame is a complete dead end. Okay, I think I mean not just in relation to sex, in relation to yeah. everything. Of course, we. Shame is basically the the term we use to describe any means of social control that isn't actually implemented through laws and yes. police and whatever, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, we are shamed for being dishonest. We are shamed for, you know, there are all sorts of things that we're shamed about. Mm. We don't necessarily use that term because it is very loaded. But I don't know, the shame that people feel about being racist. Mm. There's a new, a, a newer form of shame and a good form of shame. You shouldn't feel ashamed of being racist, you know? So I think that, the idea of doing away with shame entirely is not only impossible, but also I think bad. The The question though is what we should be attaching shame to. Mm. And I agree with Ayla when she says that we should, um, you know, women should be allowed to, to if, 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 if women really sincerely like behaving as men have historically behaved, you know, having sex like a man is the phrase that I use in the book. Yeah. Fine. I completely agree. The problem I think is when having sex like a man is seen as an ideal and is seen as a, as a default setting because it doesn't suit the interests of most women. Mm. If we're saying that something that suits the interests of, let's say, 5% of women should be the norm, that inevitably is going to mean that 95% are nudged by shame, by social pressure. One of the early chapters, so it was it was kind of funny when, when I first got introduced to your book because um, I have this other podcast that I do with my brother uh, and we just sort of treat it as a bit of a chit-chat. And he came across your book a few months ago. This was just before I, I DM'd you on Twitter. And we just sort of read the chapter titles. Sex must be taken seriously. Chapter two, men and women are different. Chapter three, some desires are bad. Chapter four, loveless sex is not empowering. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. People are not products and marriage is good. And then the conclusion, listen to your mother. And it was just like kind of funny because yes. immediately we knew that, wow, this is, <laughs> it's it's really clever in that, some people are going to think it's like, oh my god, this is your, this is like hate crime, and some people are going to think this is totally reasonable. Why is there? Why, why do you need to write a book about it? Yeah. Um, how did? Yeah. How did? How did the that naming of the chapters idea. come about? It actually went a couple of months before the book was published in the UK. It's not out yet in America. It will be in a few weeks. Um, the contents page. The publisher just uploaded the contents page and the and the and the cover to the site. No other. No other details. And it provoked a minor Twitter storm well, quite a major drift storm actually lasting several, several days because of exactly this, because some people looked at those chapter titles and thought, this woman is a fascist, right? And then other people said, hang on, what am I missing here? And that exact kind of clash of opinion yeah. was uh, explosive. It's, it's, it's interesting just kind of reading through these because having, having read the book now, I can, you can, I can sort of trace the logic of your argument through just the chapter headings, which mm -hmm. is kind of nice. So I wonder if we can start with Sex must be taken seriously. I guess when I first read that chapter, it reminded me of a thing that I was thinking and 
saying in conversations at university when like all of my friends, all my female friends would have identified as intersectional feminists. Yep. Um, this was sort of 2014, 2015 era. And there was a lot of stuff going on that, oh, f- uh, f- feminism or sort of white feminism is bad because it doesn't take into account like uh, race and class. And uh, the trans debate hadn't quite caught, caught on back in 2014. But now I'm sure intersectional feminists would include the trans yeah. stuff as, as part of that thing. But putting all that aside, um, the way I was thinking about sort of sex from a, I guess, ethical, moral, philosophical standpoint was the phrase having sex should be just as, you know, just the same as playing squash with someone. You wouldn't bat an eyelid if you're playing squash with someone. As long as both parties are consenting and it's mutual, then hey, anything goes. Why are we all making a big fuss about the sex thing? Religion is a little bit backwards because like, come on guys, sex is just like playing squash. Um, And your first chapter, Sex Must Be Taken Seriously, you talk about this idea of sexual disenchantment. I wonder like what's what's going on there? So I've borrowed the sexual disenchantment phrase from... um... Uh, an American writer called Aaron Sabarium, who borrowed it from Max Weber, who described the process of disenchantment during the Enlightenment, whereby people used to believe that nature was filled with, you know, spirits, agency, and then post-scientific revolution, we we come to believe that actually it's all just kind of scientific forces, and there's no there's no there's no specialness, there's no sacredness. It's it's just kind of like blunt physical forces kind of clashing together, and sexual disenchantment is sort of the same thing it comes out of the 1960s and it's the idea that sex used to have a a sacred status i mean in all religious traditions pretty much sex has some sort of special significance or some ritual associated with it in christian tradition uh sex has to take place within marriage which is a sacrament and then that all falls away and now the idea is exactly as you say that sex shouldn't it can have special meaning if people want to give it special meaning power to them but in the bare bones, it really is just like playing squash with someone, shaking someone's hand, making coffee, whatever yeah. kind of neutral social interaction you want to describe. I think there are two problems with the sexual disenchantment idea. The first is that it's nonsense. No one actually behaves as if that were true, right? Mm-hmm. Like people don't care if their partners go and play squash with someone else. People care deeply if their partners have sex with someone else. And even when they're trying really hard not to feel that way, it's a very common occurrence in polyamorous community or yeah. you know any like poly platform you want to go to online you'll find people who are desperately struggling with jealousy so this is even when it's not just a case of breaking the contract of the marriage exactly which is one it's not, easy defense yeah exactly it's not that your partner is being deceitful or anything like that it's just that you have this deep visceral response to your partner having sex with someone else in a way that of course you would not have to any of these other kind of yeah. neutral So in my relationship contract if I if I if I happen to have a clause saying that you know we're only going to play squash with one another and then my girlfriend plays squash with someone else the fact that yes it's a breaking of the contract like I wouldn't it's, feel it's, as it's bad about it It's a peculiar stipulation yeah. but you know yeah it clearly <laughs> but, has a different kind of yeah, emotional resonance doesn't it Yeah Yeah, people don't behave as if sexual disenchantment was true. Similarly, if your boss asks you to do something that's not in your job description, right? If you're asked to, I don't know, make them coffee as the example I give in the book, or you're asked to do overtime, or you're asked to do, you know, something that's not like strictly listed within your your duties. Mm -hmm. Fine, that's normal. Like we, I think we've all had experiences like that. If your boss asks you to give him a blowjob... That's completely different. Everyone knows that's completely different. And the feminists who who are loudest in insisting that sex can be just like playing squash are the first to say that, of course, your boss shouldn't be asking you to give him a blowjob, right? Because we know that actually this isn't like a neutral, there is something 
there is something special. We know we might not want to use the word sacred, but there is something special about sex, which means that people just have a wholly different emotional response to it. So on that front, um, you know, if we compare like a boss asking you to work overtime versus boss asking you to give him a blowjob, clearly those things are very, very, very different. Yeah. What would the steel man uh, feminist say in this situation if they weren't trying to use sacredness and specialness of sex? as a reason as to why this feels different? So they might say that um, there's a kind of imbalance between men and women, um, which means that there's a power dynamic at play, which makes that request more kind of charged okay. than it would be, um, than some other interaction would be. I guess in, I, I guess they might compare it to something like the imbalance between someone who's rich and someone's poor and the sort of inherent tension based on that power differential. Um, you can't really apply that to two men. If a male busks us, his male junior employees give him a blowjob, that's also really bad. Yeah. Okay, so, so what would... I think that falls that... apart on that basis. I think the problem is just that it's very difficult to rationalize. Mm. It's It's not something you can kind of easily line up in a logical argument. But the fact is people feel differently about sex than they do about other things. Yeah. And as far as we can tell, people have always felt that way. And that's just a, that's just like a, a component of human life that we have to reckon with. And I think the problem with trying to explain it away and say, oh, well, this, you know, whatever, people have these deep visceral feelings, but they are somehow wrong to, hmm. is that I think that down the line, that's really bad for women. I mean, I think it's bad for everyone, but I think it's particularly bad for women because um, if you don't think that sex has a special status, it's very hard to explain why rape would have a special status. Why would it have a special status aside from theft, you know, or some other kind of neutral? Yeah. I mean, you might say yeah. that it, it's it's more like violating of bodily autonomy Why? than something like theft is. But I guess if you were then to compare it to, I don't know, getting stabbed or something. Like, it yeah. it just... So, I, when you when you first said the blowjob thing on Chris Williamson's podcast, so he's a friend of mine, um, I was... I found myself trying to run circles around my own brain to figure out like there's got to be a reason why this thing is bad other than saying oh because sex is just special like because that feels like a such an obvious answer yeah. but also feels like the answer that i i'm almost loath to concede that point that like sh surely there must be like power dynamics oh but mm. i think it's a, <laughs> yeah. i think because it runs very counter to um the liberal paradigm which is all about um, rationalizing human behavior. I, it's it's often been observed that um, radical feminists, so that's feminists who come out of the second wave and, and tend to have this kind of Marxist analysis of the relationships between men and women, reach many of the same conclusions as Catholics hmm. and some other religious groups who are Catholics in particular. Catholics, they oppose um, prostitution, porn, surrogacy, you know, whatever you want to pick like they are they are often in agreement although not entirely with radical feminists and, and i've often heard um uh academics and other um analysts think asking why that would be like what possible why would radical feminists have anything in common with catholics and it's often used against radical feminists as well as kind of a suggestion that they're somehow like secretly really conservative i think the reason that they reach the same conclusion actually is not because they are unusual, it's because the liberal secular alternative is unusual in that they they recognize the specialness of sex. 
they agree that for whatever reason, people have this very, very strong instinct to view sex as special in the same way that we have a very strong instinct to like love our children mm. or any other manner of slightly strange, <laughs> irrational response, right? Yeah. Um, it's just a given. This is just how people feel. And I think if you start with that prior, then you are going to end up, particularly if you're really concerned about the well-being of women and of children, you're going to end up opposing things like porn. And I think the reason that people people's attempts to deny the specialness of sex why they end up being much more permissive it comes from that prior but i think the i think the prior is a problem and i think also that people are really inconsistent on it mm. people will say simultaneously that whatever sex is like playing squash but then they won't behave as if that's the case yeah yeah one of the other interesting examples that you talk about in the book is this this situation and uh I hadn't come across this before, so it just really sort of threw me for one when when when, when you posed it in the book. This idea of um, essentially sexual favors in return for rent. Yeah. Yeah. What's the, like? What's the, what's the what's the story here? Um, yeah, it had some media attention during the pandemic because it became landlords started doing it more. Um, it's basically the problem when when uh, landlords will advertise often surreptitiously. Um, that they'll offer free or reduced rent in exchange for sexual favors from young, attractive tenants, right? And I have yeah. I don't think I've ever come across anyone who thinks that's fine. Yeah. Aside from the like handful of landlords who might propose it themselves. Like <laughs> all political parties in the UK are, are unanimous. It's just like so terrible. obviously a terrible thing. <laughs> right. Yes. But then I and yeah. and I think it's very striking that say the Liberal Democrats are really opposed to the sex for rent and there's been various calls to have like bespoke offenses criminalizing um criminalizing the advertising of it but they want to decriminalize the sex industry and jeremy corbyn similarly was opposed to sex for rent but also has said on the record that he thinks that decriminalizing sex work would be the more civilized option that was the expression he used hmm. i'm like lads this is the same thing you're just exchanging one form of economic good for another if you if you want to say that a um a tenant is far too vulnerable to be exchanging sex in exchange for housing or if you want to say that there is just something grubby and exploitative and sexist and whatever about even proposing this as an arrangement how can you possibly say that it's fine as long as it's cash it yeah. just doesn't make sense I mean, to me. Cash can be exchanged for rent, so it's like literally just removing an intermediary. Exactly. But clearly, something about it feels really, really bad. I think it's because it highlights what's going on. I think it's because um, I think that we've been sold a bit of a fantasy about what the sex industry looks like. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't have any contact with the sex industry. They've probably never knowingly spoken to. They will have spoken to sex buyers in their lives because there are enough of them around, but probably they wouldn't know about it. And they probably won't have have, have spoken to um, people in prostitution. So a lot of what we think about, what we th a lot of what we think about the sex industry comes from fiction. Um, things like Diary of a Call Girl would be a very typical portrayal of the sex industry and a very unrepresentative one. It's not to say that there aren't examples of high-class cool girls who have unusual experiences of the industry but it's absolutely not the norm um i think part of the reason i um i take a different view from the standard view of the sex industry is because of actually speaking to women who've been in it at the at the grim end right not at the not at the the high end at the at the worst end where actually most of the women are to be found right um 
so I think that's part of the reason why people tend to have a slightly more re- permissive rhetorical stance on it. Whereas I think with sex for rent, it's just so obvious what's going on, particularly in the middle of a housing crisis, mm. is that people are desperate and they're, and you can so easily imagine how someone could be coerced into that kind of really exploitative and dangerous mm. situation. I also do wonder a bit, like a lot of the reporting on sex for rent is about university cities and about the possibility of students being trapped in this kind of arrangement because we know, of course, that students are don't very much money. And I can't help but think that part of what's going on there is class as well. I think there's that feeling that the women who end up actually in like normal prostitution are poor almost always, right? And it doesn't feel as if like it's something that could realistically happen to middle-class women, whereas a landlord making a sleazy request of you does feel like it could happen to middle-class women. So I can't help but think that there's an element of like self-interest there. Uh, yeah. That's just me being cynical, but there we are. All right, we're just going to take a quick break from the podcast to introduce our sponsor, which is Huel. Now, this is very exciting because I've actually been a paying customer of Huel since 2017. I started eating Huel in my fifth year of medical school, and I've been using Huel regularly ever since because, you know, I like to be productive. I've, you know, my calendar is full with a lot of things. And often I don't have the time or don't make the time to have a particularly healthy breakfast or a particularly healthy lunch. And Huel is fantastic for those occasions because it's 400 calories. They've got tons and tons of different flavors. My favorite flavor is salted caramel because for that, you get 400 calories. You also get 40 grams of protein. Super hard to get enough protein in my diet these days, especially with, with trying to get hench and working out. Huel just makes sure that I get at least those 40 grams in the 400 calories. And it's got 26 different vitamins and minerals, which really helps with the whole healthy balanced diet thing as well. Now, I don't use Huel with every meal. I wouldn't recommend using it with every meal, but in those occasions where you find yourself reaching for a very unhealthy snack or about to order a really unhealthy takeaway, it's just absolutely fantastic to being able to have the option. Now, I use the Huel Black Edition in the mornings. It's very nice. I put two scoops of powder into my little blender type thing. I add water, sometimes a bit of milk, and that gives me what I need. But also for lunch, I like using the Huel Hot and Savory product that they've got, which is basically you add boiling water to this container of stuff. And you can make yourself like a, they've got a really good cheese pasta type one, which is which is my favorite thing. And again, also all of these are nutritionally complete meals. They're all vegan. They all have all these nutrients and vitamins and minerals and stuff. And they're often reasonably high protein as well. And it's also ridiculously cost-effective. Like one of these meals is £1.68 for a 400 calorie meal, which is like, a tenth of the price of what I would be ordering from Deliveroo instead. And so really, Huel is a perfect companion for a busy life where you want to get a lot of things done and you don't, if you don't necessarily have a lot of time to cook a healthy meal and deal with all the prep and all the shopping and all the cleanup, then Huel is a great addition to your life rather than a replacement for all of the meals in your life. Anyway, if that sounds up your street and you want to try out Huel, then if you head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive, that URL is a special URL which will give you a free t-shirt and a free shaker thing with your first order. And so yeah, head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive and thank you so much Huel for sponsoring this episode. This episode is very kindly brought to you by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for advice about investing because I've made a bunch of videos about it on the YouTube channel. And my advice for most people is generally invest in broad stock market index funds, which is exactly what you can do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you trade stocks and funds and ETFs and foreign exchange if you really want to. And one of the great things about the app is that if you're new to the world of investing, you can actually invest with fake money. You don't have to put real money in. They've got a practice mode where you invest fake money and then it actually tracks what the market is doing in real time 
time. So you can see, had I invested £100 into this thing, what would my return have been? X weeks or X months further down the line. Once you've got some comfort with that, then it's super easy to deposit money into your Trading212 account. You can use Apple Pay, like I do initially, or you can use a direct bank transfer. And then once the money is in your Trading212 account, then you can invest it in basically whatever you want. Now, if you're based in the UK, you might be familiar with the concept of an ISA, which is an individual savings account, which is basically a tax-free wrapper that you can put money in. You can put £20,000 in every year, up to £20,000, and it resets every April. And then all that money can grow and it's completely tax-free for the rest of your life. And if you want to sign up for an ISA, you can sign up for one completely for free, also on Trading212. So if you haven't yet filled up your ISA allowance or at least put some money into your ISA for this year, that might be a good step forward. The app also lets you auto-invest, which is a great thing because then you can automatically invest a percentage of your paycheck into the thing every month. And so if you haven't yet started with investing and you want to give it a go, then you can download the app on the App Store. And if you use the coupon code ALI, A-L-I, at the checkout, that will give you a totally free share worth up to £100. It's available on iPhone and Android, and you can check it out by typing in Trading212 into your respective App Store. So thank you so much, Trading212, for sponsoring this episode. I'm going to pose a hypothetical here. Let's so um, these days, uh, society at large considers something like OnlyFans to be a totally reasonable form of side hustle for mostly women. Yeah. Um, I don't think there are many men on OnlyFans. There but, are some but, of the mostly have male clients, I think. Sure. So. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, but OnlyFans is considered a reasonable side hustle because, of course, sex work is work. Mm -hmm. And just like I <laughs> debased myself on the internet through YouTube videos, yes. uh, <laughs> you know, what's really the difference between that and OnlyFans? It's all consensual, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then you have people like... Uh, ALA who are kind of sort of outspoken about how great a lifestyle this is and how actually being uh, sort of women having the ability to make money through something like OnlyFans where they have zero risk of violence because it's all through the internet yep. and where the alternative might be working in a really grim factory. So why not allow women this, this opportunity? Let's put that as like on the one hand. And then if we sort of add in this sort of uh, sex for rent situation whereby hypothetically if a landlord were to say, you know what, I don't want you to have sex with me i just want to I, I just want you to be a sort of webcam girl for me and in return i'll give you discounted rent mm -hmm. that would still feel really weird yes <laughs> and, the, and and <laughs> it, it it's still there's something about that that still feels really sleazy and not nice and bad compared yeah. to if that landlord happened to be a paying client on her only fans account and it's just the relationship was just less obvious even though He's paying her money. Effectively, yeah. she's getting a discount on rent. What? What's Why going on there? Yeah. Why does it feel so bad in that um, situation? Maybe it's because it feels much more real and immediate. You know what it also is probably to some extent? Things like a diary, secret diary of a call girl, that kind of thing. I mean, it's always really interesting whenever you see um, either fictional portrayals or you see media reports on the sex industry. You know, the classic photo they use in the sex industry is like a woman in a short skirt leaning into a car. Like the photos are always of typically sort of headless women um, in sexy outfits. Mm. You never see photos of the clients. I can't remember her name now off the top of my head, but there's this um, German woman who did a, 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 pro a project where she took photos of sex buyers because in Germany it's legal. So they have sort of nothing to fear from being photographed. So she did this series of, of portraits of sex buyers. I mean, partly to demonstrate the fact that they are you know, old, young, fat, thin, whatever, like the whole range of men, but also like they're not attractive generally, kind of by definition, if you're seeking out sex with someone who you have to coerce through payment, like there's a good chance it's because she wouldn't otherwise have sex with you, right? These guys are not attractive. And I think that 
I think it's actually important to remember that, not have it as this kind of fantasy arrangement where you've got like a sexy guy in a dinner suit or whatever that you might see on the TV. Like these are the 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 line I've I've heard from um Rachel Moran, who is a writer, she wrote this amazing memoir called Paid For about being in prostitution. Um is if you want to know what it actually feels as a woman to to like really imagine what it would be like to be in prostitution, go into any bar, cafe, pub, whatever, look around at every man in your vicinity and imagine having sex with all of them. Like no choice, hmm. right? doesn't matter how much you fancy them. Hmm. And I wonder if thinking about having a sex for rent or a nudes for rent avail- um, arrangement or whatever with your landlord is we all think of like our last landlord. <laughs> we think, no, no, thank you. Yeah. I guess it brings to relief what's actually going on. Exactly. Whereas it's like, like a visceral reminder of what it means. With like an anonymous field of like OnlyFans viewers or shoppers yeah. and stuff, it, it just sort of separates that out. Yeah. Um, the argument I make in the book for why um, prostitution invariably causes trauma to women in particular in it is um you know it's partly to do with the fact it's extraordinarily dangerous and it, it is and has very high rates of violence of every kind um but also i think i think the reason it's invariably experienced as traumatic with a few exceptions like ayla for instance although ayla actually did has she stopped doing in-person sex work right so she didn't she didn't like it very much but anyway um is because a very, very deep-seated instinct within women, which has a very obvious and um, and clear evolutionary background, is that we really care a lot about who we have sex with. Like, mate choice is very, very important, which does make sense if you understand the fact that men and women have different mating strategies. And the it's very much in women's interest to be picky about who they get pregnant by, because pregnancy is extremely demanding on the body, dangerous labor is dangerous you then have a baby to look after for how many however many years afterwards which is a burden on you burn on your community um you don't want to get pregnant by some bozo who's gonna who either has terrible genes or is going to abandon you so that that desire to invest wisely in your sexual partners is very very deep-seated and what prostitution does is it violates that choice you 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 don't have the option you don't have the the the, the make choice is removed from your power Hmm. and i think that is a big part of the reason why it has this very very deeply felt emotional response yeah so i think like with all these different hypotheticals and scenarios and stuff i mean the conclusion of chapter one is essentially sex must be taken seriously because sex is in fact a special good beyond a coffee or a handshake or staying late at work it's like this special thing yeah and we might not be able to explain exactly why it's a special thing using the liberal moral ideology but we all just kind of know it is like it's it's something that feels very unfashionable to say out loud but everyone just knows it like no one actually behaves as if sex is as irrelevant as, as getting someone a coffee precisely which segues us nicely into um you know, uh chapter two which is men and women are different what's yes. uh what's going on there i guess kind of we're thinking physically yeah. And also psychologically and like emotionally, um, physically is. Pro- I mean, even even that is. It should some- be obvious, <laughs> but yeah, it isn't necessarily. <laughs> the obvious thing is just in the sense that women are the ones who get pregnant, um, which means that in any heterosexual encounter, there's that asymmetry. Um, also, the fact that women are much smaller and weaker than men, but like a surprising degree. I think people. I think I think it's become easier to 
trivialize that difference because we live in a modern world where strength differences aren't as obvious and even you can like if you don't have siblings and you don't go to the gym and you don't do any manual work you can go like quite a long way without realizing that like your sibling is going to thrash you in a fight if you're if you're of if 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 he's male and you're female you know uh, particularly post puberty because different upper body differences for instance between men and women are, are wild i think it's like a factor of 2 the male punching strength is twice as forceful as female on average and it's one of those things that if you look at if you look at gra- like a scatter graph showing different individuals like yes there are some isolated examples not as many as you might think, though, and definitely the extreme end, like Olympians, for instance. Like, if if women didn't have a protected category in the Olympics, they just wouldn't even make it anywhere close to actually competing in the games because yeah. um, the difference is that stark, which matters, obviously, right? So if you're talking about, like, going home with the randomer, if, 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 a, man, if a man and a woman are alone together, the man just inherently is going to have a physical advantage. Um, combined with the fact that the woman is the one who risks any pregnancy, who who suffers the risks associated with things like hormonal birth control, mm. there are just a whole bunch of ways in which women are at a disadvantage in that kind of scenario. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- this uh, this idea that men and women are different was pretty unfashionable when I was at university, and I'm not I'm not sure to what extent it still is, having been out of university now for several years. Um, but often, I would find that when I was talking to people about this. I'd be using the the phrase. Uh, I, I I'd, I'd be using the idea of averages and the idea of a normal distribution with just like yeah. an innate understanding of what a normal distribution is. Yeah. And yet, people would always say, "Oh, but my friend is six foot three, and she's she could take any man in a fight." Yeah. And I'd be like, "Okay." Smart people can be really dumb about that. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's what's going on there? Even I think, scientists. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Uh, yeah, because people will, will tend to just come up with exceptions. Mm. Um, and of course, those exceptions exist. Like th- this, completely. I'm completely willing to incorporate exceptions into this whole analysis. Um, it is funny how people tend not to do it about more morally neutral things, like height, for instance. Yeah. We're happy to accept that men are taller than women on average, even if there are tall women and there are some short men. Like yeah. The difference is massive. Um, similarly, on other physical differences. And the, I mean, the psychological ones is the one that people really get upset about. Yeah. And obviously, psychological differences are much more amenable to cultural influence than physical ones. Mm. Um, still, there's loads of evidence, and the evidence accumulates more and more because we now have more sophisticated research methods that makes it clear that these there are some important differences between men and women on average, and they hold true cross, cross-culturally. So I guess, um, you know, we can, we, we can go into the psychological differences in a moment, but I I guess someone listening to this might be thinking, okay, fine, but like, why does on average even matter? Like, why do I personally care about the average? I'm not necessarily the average man or the average woman. Yeah. Uh, at one point, a friend of mine gave dating advice to me saying that, you know, uh, on average, women prefer men who uh, are sort of come across as more masculine and therefore wear a black t-shirt in your Tinder profile pictures and like, don't sing those Disney songs and have Harry Potter posters in your house because <laughs> the average woman will think that uh, mm, it's not particularly masculine, it's not particularly alpha male kind of vibes. And I mentioned this on a podcast, but I'm sort of just in passing and all the comments were, oh my God, I can't, like, this is such a stupid way of thinking. Like, obviously, you know, you aren't trying to appeal to the average, you're trying to appeal to an in, in, in individual, true. you should be yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Where do you see the balance of like, how much should we care about on average versus actually treating individuals as individuals? So, yeah, and on an, on an individual level, people might make 
decisions unique to their situation and that would be fine. The problem is when you're talking about population level and you're talking about like laws, obviously, the legal system applies to everyone, regardless of where you're on the bell curve, um, but also applying to to norms, right? Because my argument in the book is that we used to have quite an elaborate set of norms relating to regulating sexual relationships between men and women, and we've mostly done away with them and left just the consent framework standing, and I don't think the consent framework is good enough. I'm saying that actually things like, you know, if you have a norm that is something like men shouldn't hit women, I mean, the law says that too, but just in terms of what, what's considered to be socially acceptable, there are all sorts of things that are against the law people do anyway, right? Like speeding, mm. people speak all the time, et cetera. If you have a really rock solid norm where you say men hitting women is really bad, but women hitting men, it's not good, but it's not quite as bad. Like that's asymmetrical, clearly. Um, and there might be examples of a woman who really belts a man and, you know, he's small and frail and that's and that's like very dangerous but the reason that you would have that slightly that slightly um different standard is because of recognizing the fact that these average differences exist and at the population level a man hitting a woman is much more likely to kill her than a woman hitting a man because most men can kill most women with their bare hands and the reverse is not true and that matters a great deal when you're thinking about um yeah, relationships to men and women. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think that was the thing that really struck me with the debate that you had with uh, Ayala on that Unheard YouTube channel podcast show thing, where it seemed like you were both sort of saying the same thing, but yeah. what she was saying was a lot of kind of, but let's take the individual into account. Yeah. And it sounded like you were saying, okay, but if we're making laws and deciding norms for a whole society, we can't just take individuals into account. We have to with all of the all of the ca all of the downsides associated with broad brushstrokes we've got to draw a broad brushstrokes somewhere yeah we have to <laughs> and so yeah. why not do that in a way that protects women rather than that i guess protects the interests of the Hugh Hefner's of the world as as you, as you say in the book yeah have you come across rob henderson's idea of luxury beliefs uh only in the book i recently followed him on twitter uh, so i want to get great. into more of his his yeah. stuff yeah um so his idea of luxury beliefs is very it's 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 a fabulous idea. It has so much explanatory power. Is um, his theory is that um, as luxury goods have become cheaper, it used to be a way of the, for the elites to signal their wealth would be to own whatever precious item. Mm. One of the consequences of globalization is that a lot of these goods have become cheaper. And his theory is that to some extent, elite the elite class have pivoted towards other means of demonstrating their elite status that are not just sort of material. And one example of this is luxury beliefs. So a luxury belief is a belief that confers status on, on elite people and the costs of it are borne entirely by poor people. Oh, okay. So what's an example of? So the example that's most relevant for us is polyamory. So Rob, um, gives the example of um, being in a university town and setting your Tinder location to like a mile radius and you'll find loads and loads of women at Harvard, Oxford, whatever, um, who will say that they are poly, they're interested in open relationships, they're doing this kind of, you know, bohemian thing, which is increasingly fashionable. Um, and uh, it's a way of them advertising their sexiness and their rebelliousness and so on in a way that attracts partners and, you know, confers status. 
but then he describes setting your Tinder radi- ratio, let's say in a city like Oxford, to like 10 mile radius. And then you start seeing women who are single mothers, right? Who are living the, li- who are living the consequences of disregarding monogamous marriage as an institution and like suffering for it. Being a single mother is really tough in all sorts of ways. And they don't get any status for that at all, right? Like living the polyamorous life, if you're poor and you live in a council estate, is not high status at all and actually causes all sorts of destructive effects in your life. Whereas if you're rich, you can be poly and you can basically pick up the pieces if everything goes wrong because you have that kind of buffer around you Mm. that's conferred by wealth and conferred by status. Um, It's a really... It's a really useful idea. Yeah. Um, and I think that that applies to, I mean, it does apply to something like um, what Ayla's talking about in relation to prostitution. So she has an unusual experience of it. Not always a good experience, but, you know, better than many. And she describes it as being a lot better than, for instance, working in a terrible factory job that she used to do. And I respect that. I completely recognize the fact that in her individual case, that may be true. The problem is that she's experienced the, the, the like tippy-toppy end of, the best form of prostitution through OnlyFans and other, you know, camming, whatever, there's much less violence. Um, she has quite good money. She's not pimped. Like every possible dimension is better than it might otherwise be. And the problem is that if we're going to legislate or, or construct norms around Ayla's experience and do as many, you know, intersectional feminists and so on do and talk about sex work being work, which is a luxury belief, right? It's the sort of thing that if you say that in a university common room, it will confer status on you or make you look um, open-minded and liberal and bohemian and all of this stuff, right? Um, it might be good for some women like Ayla. It's not going to be w- good for women at the opposite end of the scale because the argument I make around um, decriminalizing the sex industry, I mean, bearing in mind that all legal models in relation to the sex industry are like better and worse trade-offs, it's a difficult, it's just a difficult thing to legislate for inherently. But I think the the key problem with decriminalizing demand, making it legal to pay for sex, is that there aren't actually enough women like like Ayla or whoever who are willing to meet that demand. Most mm. women really, really don't want to be in prostitution. They'll only do it if they're very poor or if they're otherwise coerced. And the problem is that in societies where um, buying sex is legal, more men do it, obviously. Mm. Like the difference is quite apparent between a country like like in thailand for instance like amazingly high proportion of men by sex um in germany um since the legalization of sex industry the proportion of german men who have bought sex has gone up a lot and the and it becomes routine at things like stag do's you'll go to a you'll go to a brothel right which is not considered normal in countries where it's criminalized um is you need to meet that demand you need women who can who can who can supply the sex that is being demanded and that's when you get things like increases in trafficking so legalization is associated with an increase in trafficking because pimps need to find women who can you know meet this demand and make money mm-hmm. for them and so what sounds like a great open-minded idea which suits the interests of like the high-end cool girls yeah is a luxury belief because the women who are suffering for it are at the opposite end of the social spectrum yeah and i guess um you talk about the Nordic model for this. What is what is yeah, that? Yeah, so the Nordic model is when you uh, decriminalize sellers and criminalize buyers. Decriminalize sellers. Yeah. Oh, so it's not illegal to be the prostitute, but yeah. it is illegal to be the person yeah. seeking the prostitute. Yeah. And this is good because it well it reduces the demand and criminalizes the powerful people, i.e., the men who buy the thing. Yeah. But it doesn't 
criminalize the poor destitute women who are forced into it. Yes, which has historically often been what's done that the the, the women are the ones who get locked up and the men go free, which is mm. obviously horrendous. So it, it flips that. Okay. Psychological difference the differences between men and women. What is uh what's uh what's the kind of worms here? Um and I guess how is it relevant to this this whole debate? Again, it's that population level thing. Um I mean it the the, the degree of difference varies quite a lot depending on what trait you're talking about. Mm. Um one of the ones that gets the most attention, I think wrongly, is um the idea that men are more interested in things and women are more interested in people. Um, do you remember the James Damore Google memo? Oh, yes. So I can't remember if it was like five yeah. years ago, maybe it was, a bit yeah. longer. Uh, James Damore was a t- um, a technician at Google. And so I can't remember his role at Google. He worked at Google and he wrote um, a memo, which he circulated among his colleagues, explaining the fact that the fact that there's an underrepresentation of women in certain roles at Google and an overrepresentation in others. So you see more women in things like human resources, communications kind of roles, which are more people focused. And then you see more men in more, say, the engineering roles. He said that this could be explained by the fact that there are um, these average differences between what men and women are interested in. And if you're looking at the, the, the very furthest tail on the bell curve in terms of, say, how interested you are in hard sciences you are going to expect to see more men at that tail because because of the gap on average between the two sexes his argument was completely sound his research was completely sound he got fired because it was just you're not supposed to say this (laughs) i think you're particularly not supposed to say this if you're a man and you work for google um (laughs) um, so as a woman who doesn't work for google i can get away with saying it (laughs) do you buy james's reasoning here yeah he's right um I also think that, and he says this himself in the memo, that the difference is, the average difference is not massive. So you will expect to see men and women across the whole range of people, things, Mm. you know, distribution. The same is true of something like agreeableness. Women are a bit more agreeable than men are, but there are still plenty of women who are really disagreeable and plenty of men who are really agreeable or neuroticism. Like there are lots of traits which see a gap, but the gap isn't massive. Right. Um, something like aggression though the gap is massive mm. like, 90 like the average gap as yes well. Yeah, okay. as well as and but then obviously that's and then most obviously apparent the tails so exactly. like the vast majority of people in prison are men yeah 95% in this yeah. country um, because men particular, and, and there's also an age skew there so um, men and women but it's most striking in men are by far the most um, violent when they're in their teens and 20s and then the violent offending falls off a cliff Mm. Um, which I don't think can be explained except biologically, right? I don't. Okay. I think if you, I think if you just want to explain that on the basis of socialization, which is often a um, uh, a theory that feminists have have pursued to say that men are particularly in childhood are, so, are socialized to be aggressive through things like toy guns, and that we yeah. should be focusing on. You know, I think fine, and clearly there is some truth to that, and clearly um, there are certain childhood or other environmental experiences that can make violent offending more likely. But then also you look at something like the age distribution in violent offending, you think, hang on, why would a 20-year-old be many, many times more likely than a 40-year-old to commit this kind of offense? Unless what we're kind of talking about here is hormones, which is trivializing a little, which is simplifying it a little bit, Mm. because clearly there's a lot of, there's a lot going on in terms of our, our biological makeup. But 
the gap between um, violence, violent aggression in men and women is massive and very important if you're trying to, if you're thinking at the population level. And, and the, I mean, the, 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 the trait that's most relevant to me and that I write about most in most detail in the book is what psychologists call sociosexuality. So that's your interest in sexual variety. It's not quite the same thing as sex drive. Okay. But um, someone who was high in the trait of, um, has unrestricted sociosexuality, as psychologists would say, is someone who is really interested in having lots of partners, wants to jump into bed with someone as soon as they've met them, will... Um, um, is much more likely to say things like having sex without love is fine. Um, basically, someone who's having an absolute ball post-sexual revolution, right, yeah. is someone who is high in sociosexuality. And men, I don't think anyone will be surprised to hear, are higher on average in that trait than are women. And the gap is fairly significant. And at the tails, it's the most marked. So that's why sex bias is almost entirely male. Mm. Would it not be reasonable to say that this is all a result of socialization. Like women have been oppressed throughout history and slut shamed and stuff. And therefore, of course, they're going to be lower in sociosexuality um, compared to men for whom, like, even though we'd like to say the sexual double standard doesn't exist, it still does. Men are conferred higher status by having multiple partners. Um, all of those things surely mean that uh, actually maybe the sociosexuality gap doesn't, doesn't, quote, doesn't really exist. And it's just a, a, it's just a relic of uh, socialization. So that's the argument. Yeah, yeah, that's the alternative to my thesis. The problem with that argument is um, if if socialization is responsible for the gap, then the socialization is remarkably consistent across time and place. Like it seems like every culture decides <laughs> to flip, you know, it's like you flip the coin and it, oh, it's just coming up heads every single time. Yeah. What are the chances? <laughs> because if you look at, there's some really great studies done of um, sociosexuality across cultures everyone finds that men are higher in it on average. And I, I mean, I think to some extent we've done an experiment in the West post-sexual post revolution mm -hmm. in whether we could socialize it otherwise. Yeah. Um, and if women are encouraged, not just permitted, but encouraged to have sex like men, maybe they'll do it. Um, and the, the, the argument that I make in the book is that um, a lot of women are trying pretty hard to have sex like men and are being quite strongly encouraged by the culture and by the men in their lives to to attempt the high sociosexuality kind of way of being. Um, one of the things I examine at one point is uh, articles in women's mags about how not to catch feelings, like guides to how to have sex without emotion. And they're always framed very carefully in a gender neutral way mm. so that well if you, you know if a person didn't want to catch feelings from their relationship with another person how would they do that but it's very obvious that actually what we're talking about here is women getting emotionally attached to in these sexual relationships and, and, and not wanting to like thinking oh man this is dry this is like holding me back because i want to be having this um I wanted to be behaving as if I had unrestricted sociosexuality. I want to be um, like participating in hookup culture like a man. But I have these like niggling feelings which keep getting in the way, mm. which I think is, I mean, unless you want to say, I suppose it's socialization, the childhood socialization goes that deep that it can't be undone. Maybe, but I think Occam's razor says it's just the, the difference. <laughs> There's a difference. That's yeah. like the by far the simplest explanation for what we see across the world.
This episode is very kindly brought to you by WeWork. Now this is particularly exciting for me because I have been a full paying customer of WeWork for the last two years now. I discovered it during, you know, when the pandemic was in the, on the verge of being lifted and I'd spent like the whole year just sort of sitting in my room making YouTube videos. But then I discovered WeWork and I was a member, me and Angus, my team members, we were members of the WeWork in Cambridge and they have like hundreds of other locations worldwide as well. And it was incredible because we had this fantastic, beautifully designed office space to go to, to work. And we found ourselves like every day, just at nine o'clock in the morning, just going to WeWork because it was a way nicer experience working from the co-working space than it was just sitting at home working. These days, what me and everyone on my team has is the all access pass, which means you're not tied to a specific WeWork location, but it means you can use any of their several hundred co-working spaces around London, around the UK, and also around the world. And one of the things I really love about the co-working setup is that it's fantastic as a bit of a change of scenery. So these days I work from home, I've got the studio at home, but if I need to get some focused writing work done and I've been, I'm feeling a bit drained just sitting at my desk all day, I'll just pop over to the local WeWork, which is about a 10 minute walk from where I am. I'll take my laptop with me. I'll get some free coffee from there. I'll get a few snacks and it's just such a great vibe and you get to meet cool people. I made a few friends through meeting them at WeWork and it's just really nice being in an environment, almost like a library, but kind of nicer because there's like a little bit of soft music in the background and there's other kind of startup bros and creators and stuff in, in there as well. And it's just my absolute favorite co-working space of all time. It's super easy to book a desk or book a conference room using the app. And it's a great place to meet up with team members if you're gonna collaborate and you'll live in different places. They've got unlimited tea and coffee and herbal teas and drinks on tap. And they've got soundproof booths in which to take Zoom calls and meetings. Anyway, if you're looking for a co-working space for you or your team, then I'd 100% recommend WeWork. Like I said, I've been a paying customer for theirs for the last two years, which is why it's particularly exciting that they're now sponsoring this episode. And if you want to get 50% off your first booking, then do head over to we.co forward slash Ali. And you can use the coupon code Ali at checkout ALI to get 50% off your first booking. So thank you so much, WeWork, for sponsoring this episode. When I was in university in, in, in my third year, because, you know, in, uh, in, in medicine, you can do the whatever you want in, in your third year. So I did psychology. Mm -hmm. And one of our lecture courses was the psychology of individual differences. And this was comparing things like men versus women in all, all sorts of things, personality, IQ, controversial, different race differences between all these different things. And a lot of it was like, well, you know, when it comes to things like aggression, when it comes to things like sociosexuality, there's a clear evolutionary psycholo psychology rationale for this. Yeah. And, you know, Homo sapiens has been around for 300,000 years. It's really been an eye blink uh, in terms of human history where the pill has been a thing. Yeah. So, of course, our evolutionary brains are somewhat hardwired to, you know, for women to be choosier about who they have sex with and men's mating strategy to be like willy-nilly, you know. Yes. Whatever. Um, Say well dates. Exactly. Um, yeah. And yet it, fe if it, fe it felt like even, even, even at the time at university where like I, I had friends who were doing like anthropology and like art subject and stuff. Where one of the one of the essay titles in like the third year exam was uh, "Biological Sex is a Lie." Discuss, and I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> I mean, gender, okay, like yeah. fair enough, but like, yes. are we really going to talk about chromosomes and biological sex and like uteruses and stuff as if they're just completely mythical and how hormones have absolutely no effect at all? Yeah. And it became very unfashionable to even suggest that there was a evolutionary psychology explanation for stuff to the point that anytime I bring up the idea, oh, but like evolutionarily. The response would be, look, that's what the men's rights activists say. You've been reading all this red pill stuff, haven't you? Um, but it sounds yeah. like it, it just is the simplest explanation <laughs> that yeah. there is a, a difference and let's acknowledge the difference and let's work with it rather than trying to, I guess, override our evolutionary instincts. Yeah, I think that the so I do I do I do completely get and sympathize with the um, feminist hostility to evolutionary psychology mm. and indeed to sort of scientific sexism so-called in general it goes back a long way 
there have been some pretty egregious examples of historically of sort of attempts to rationalize um, the subordination of women. Um, the missing five ounces was the phrase that was used by some 19th century psychologists to describe the fact that given that women had like, given that women have smaller brains because women are mm. smaller, um, that missing five ounces on average <laughs> explained women's intellectual inferiority. Mm. When of course we know that like, if you're not going to let women go to university, like they're going to struggle to <laughs> like making groundbreaking achievements in intellectual field so like that's clearly an example and we found i mean you mentioned sex and iq we know that the average iq between men and women is about the same even if the range is bigger for men so i think that is a clear example of the fact that it wasn't it was an environmental limit but that doesn't mean that we have to dismiss all scientific research into sex differences and all of the evidence for it and i think the evolution i think the evolutionary psychology is just it's just a morally neutral field of study and we can do with it whatever we want to do. It's, it is an inconvenient field of study if what you want to do is kind of deny the existence of human nature per se and build kind of build utopia off the idea of us being blank slates. Mm. Uh, we aren't blank slates though, is the problem. <laughs> and mm. we kind of have to deal with what we've got. And my view is that, look, if these sex differences exist, then that's then that's just the fact it's not it's not a good or a bad thing mm. but it is what we have to work with and i think actually there's a strong case for using evolutionary psychology to feminist ends in some situations what's that so for instance um if we accept the difference in sociosexuality between men and women and we accept the fact that actually it's going to be very difficult for women to um be persuaded or persuade themselves into imitating a more masculine style of sexuality, mm. then I think that the, the feminist argument against hookup culture becomes irrefutable. Whereas if you're working with a blank slate model and you're saying, well, all of this is socialized, all of this can be undone, you're kind of giving fuel to the, um, to the Hugh Hefners who are intent on persuading women out of their like natural and self-protective instincts. So, so we talked about two areas in particular in which men and women are on average different. So aggression and sociosexuality. Mm -hmm. um, another area that I, th I, th I think you talk about in the book, but um, I, again, there's a, a, a specific example that I'm, I'm thinking of that, that brings this to light is that I was having a conversation with a female friend um, couple of weeks ago months ago um and there was this this person that we were talking about this guy was going on a date with a girl and well, okay cool guys going on a date with a girl that they met online no harm done like let's yeah okay cool um but then it transpired that the chap in question had in fact booked a hotel room for the night around where they were having the date okay. just in case things went well okay now in my mind i was thinking all right fair enough and in her mind, she was thinking, oh, my freaking God, this is just completely unacceptable. Like, oh, just this sort of, uh, in, in innate sense of revulsion at the thought mm -hmm. that a man would have the audacity to book a hotel room just in case things went well. And of course, yeah. it would be consensual and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, we were, we, we were a bit puzzled, puzzled by this, she and I, because it's like, we had a very clear difference in me not batting an eyelid. It's like, I mean, obviously, it's, like, it's going to be consensual. Uh, and is there as an option? And, you know, worst case, he goes to his hotel room alone. Like, who cares? Yeah. For, but, but for her, it was like this real sense of revulsion. And I feel like this idea of 
kind of getting the ick and like feeling that innate sense of revulsion about certain things yes uh will will give women a very different response than it does it does to men yes what, what's what's going what's going on there yeah the ick interesting isn't it and the ick is one of those things that you read about in women's mags and again um well actually no is generally represented as being a woman thing Women get the ick and men tend not to get the ick. And what's being described there, basically, in colloquial terms, is um, the fact that women's sexual disgust threshold is a lot lower than men's. Mm. Um, and that's one of those things that you can measure quite objectively because you can measure people's disgust response through things like sweating and heart rate. Um, and it's much easier to trigger in women than it is in men. Um There's interesting evolutionary theories around this. I mean, it might be partly to do with mate choice, the fact that women care more about it than men do. It might also be to do with the fact that women tend to be more vulnerable to sexual disease. So women are more easily grossed out by signs of disease in a potential sexual partner. And that might be because um, the nature of penetrative sex just means that women tend to be more vulnerable to disease transmission from sex. And also that women are more likely to pass sexual diseases onto their children through pregnancy and breastfeeding. So there's maybe a more like a deeply embedded instinctive protective factor there mm. um whatever the cause it does seem to be it, it does seem to have some kind of evolutionary cause it could be several um and yeah it is deeply felt and i think it's something that um um i mean partly because i think we're very invested in our post-sexual revolution culture in denying the differences between men and women pretending that we're very similar i think it's something that um men and women struggle to um sort of instinctively comprehend that difference i think this often is what's going on with conflict between incels and feminists (laughs) in that like i think from from a certain kind of maybe naive incel perspective the fact that any woman can go out into the street or anywhere really and pick up a sex partner within minutes is seen as heaven on earth, right? <laughs> like you're living, you're living exactly what I'm dreaming of, the ability to attract sexual partners. Whereas from women's perspective, they're like, I don't want to have sex with some random guy on the street. Like that's terrible. I dream of being um, like left alone by creepy guys who, who, who scare me. But there's like a, a visceral level on which each group can't quite understand the other yeah. because we have very different instincts around sexuality. Yeah, I, um, I remember sort of, Anytime this, I, th- I think in the last year or so, this is this sort of conversation has been had like two, two or three times with with female friends of mine, where they've mentioned that like you know they've got all these male friends, and then at one point one of the male friends will just throw away, you know, drop a throwaway comment that oh of course every guy in your friendship group would would be down to have sex with you if you if you were up for it, and they'd be like what what like it completely completely blows their mind because they yeah, cannot imagine they, they, they yeah. cannot cannot imagine a world in which like but like i i see these guys as my friends they're like they're, they're like brothers yeah and they're just like, yeah there's almost no girl i have ever met who has actually appreciated the fact that men were willing to have sex with basically anyone as long as they meet a reasonable th- threshold for attractiveness yeah. whereas that's just absolutely not the case for women and there yeah. are like even studies where they've gone out on the streets and done this like yes and 100% of the women's i know yeah. To, to to random requests from men, whereas I can't remember the figures, but it's probably like majority of men say yes, unless they're in a relationship or something like that. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that um, men do have kind of different modes of sexuality. So what, men are not consistently mm. behaving like cads. Um, men have a low bar when it comes to casual sexual partners, when, as you say, 
pretty much, you know. Julie Bendel, a feminist friend of mine, she um, likes to collect news stories about men having sex with inanimate objects because they do sometimes come <laughs> up in like local news. Okay. And she has a little like informal collection of man found having sex with a pile of leaves, man <laughs> found having sex with a bike, you know, like, like imagine it and it's happened, right? So clearly there is an extent to which men can be persuaded to basically shag anything like living or dead. But <laughs> men aren't like that. They're about like potential wives. Mm-hmm. Right. So when it comes to choosing a long-term partner, men have very high standards and, um, you know, care deeply about the whole package, not just how attractive a woman is, but everything else about her. Um, women don't seem to have those two modes. Women basically will have sex. The, the criteria that women look for in a casual partner and look for in a long-term partner are the same criteria. Um, and actually often women will have sex with a casual partner in the hope that he'll become a long-term partner um, down the line. Whereas, and I th- I think a lot of women don't realize that men have two modes, which can cause heartbreak. Because mm. if you've if you're if you're having sex with a man with the belief that you're on wife track, and he doesn't think that, yep, then that's really painful. Yeah, um, yeah. The, 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 this is another one of those things where I think there's just such a clear like. Basically, every every man knows that there are two thresholds. Yeah, there's the threshold for a good time, and there's the threshold for an actual long term relationship. Yeah, and whenever women are confronted with that, at least from what I've seen, it just it's a, really again, upsetting. it's like yeah. really mind blowing. It's like, oh my yeah, god, it's... men are the worst. Men are trash. Like I can't believe this is the thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this idea that women don't have two modes, though. So, uh, what about the trope of like women, uh, you know, wanting to have sex with the pool boy or the personal trainer, but not actually wanting to? you know those people aren't, aren't husband material they're good time material is that not the same as sort of cat versus dad it, mode? i guess yeah. it happens although it is interesting i wonder if it happens more in fiction than in real life because oh, yeah. it's interesting that um men and women tend to cheat for different reasons so men are more likely to cheat on their partners basically just because they're horny there's no there's no difference between the level of reported relationship satisfaction between men who cheat and men who don't cheat it's not because they're unhappy in their relationships that they're cheating. It's mm. they're cheating either because they're unusually horny or they're unusually like unscrupulous morally or both. Um, whereas for women, women cheat when they're unhappy in their relationships and they don't otherwise. And that, you know, on average, whatever, there are exceptions, but that seems to be because what women are doing, the purpose of cheating for women is a lifeboat to line up the next relationship because mm. you're unhappy in your current relationship. Um, so you normally wouldn't therefore cheat with the pool boy if your husband is wealthy. Hmm. Normally you'd be cheating with someone who seems like a like a viable alternative partner. Hmm. There's slightly different motivations at play there. Okay, interesting. Um There's a great book by David Buss. I mean David Buss in general is Oh, fantastic read. Yeah, I recently read The Evolution of Desire. Yeah, which is really interesting. So really his, interesting yeah. his latest book is called Bad Men. Oh, I'll check it out. It's very, very good. Yes, <laughs> and he covers a lot of this in, in great detail. Nice. And, rep- yeah. and, and um, provides the wealth of data mm. that is very persuasive. Yeah, I, like, I, I have a su- surprising interest in, in this genre, the topic. I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's this combination of like really taboo and controversial and mm-hmm. also like clearly there's this whole like scientific and like sociological and evolutionary psychological backing behind the things that we don't like to talk about that we yeah. feel are, uncontro- are, are controversial yeah um i think it depends on your personality and how much you enjoy that i find yeah. it thrilling yeah <laughs> like to to, to to sort of go behind the scenes and, and be like yes of course this is true um but some people find it confronting depends yeah um 
Okay, so we've talked about kind of two two core differences between men and women psychologically, on average, again, yeah. with all the caveats, uh, aggression and sociosexuality. Yeah. And I feel like those are sort of the two pillars that form the rest of your thesis around sexual revolution being potentially not as good a thing as we might have liked. Yeah. So had sort of if we accept that, okay, fine, let's say that Louise is right about all the evidence, the weight of the evidence suggesting that, in fact, men are on average more aggressive and more sociosexual than women. Mm-hmm. What does that mean about stuff regarding sex relationships gender dynamics it means that the people who've actually won from the sexual revolution are high status men not necessarily all men because there are some there are you know quite a lot of men if if you if you're familiar with the data that comes out of dating apps which shows that um it's a minority of men who tend to be getting all of the attention from women and the majority of men are getting almost nothing um i think that holds true generally generally post-sexual revolution in terms of like who is actually like the hugh hefners are not representative right the hugh hefners the high status attractive men who can get loads of consequence free sex um they're having a great time is 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 that not true on the women's side as well no because what women do you're familiar with hypergamy as a term so um women are much more invested than men are in general in having um relationships with people who are with men who are high status than themselves this is called hypergamy Hmm. and what that means in practice on things like dating apps where you've got a very large pool of partners to choose from is that women tend to all be flocking to the top um the men at the top of the tree so i think the figure is it's like on tinder 10 the 10 percent most attractive men are getting 60 percent of likes from women and then the bottom 10 percent are getting like zero it doesn't mm. match up neatly based on your attractiveness level yeah women are all kind of aiming yeah, higher sure. um and because on tinder and in general in a kind of casual sex culture those men are not obliged to stick to one woman they don't get married and then remove themselves from the dating market mm. right they have simultaneous relationships or they have back-to-back relationships what those men are basically doing is they are like living a pol- polygynous life right where they're accumulating multiple partners okay the women aren't necessarily aware of this right right but so you end up with some men who are having um lots of partners most men are having none and the women are also miserable because they're having these like brief unsatisfying relationships with attractive men who then ghost them but this idea for for example like the top 10 percent of men are getting likes the 60 percent of the likes is this not also true of like the top 10 percent of most attractive women are getting 60 percent of the likes or is it all women are inundated with likes because men yeah, that's fair to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just thinking of every single female friend i know who's on dating apps just like yes dozens if not hundreds yes. of matches i mean yeah. you'll have a you know you'll have a bit of a range but it's it, it doesn't accumulate at all in the same way yeah like pretty much pretty much any woman on tinder is going to have some options available to her which is not true for men yeah yeah i remember there's a there was a time a few years ago this was when back when i was a medical student um one of the chaps in our year uh was like incredibly attractive and we just went on his tinder one day and it, it it was just like something out of this world. It's like every single right swipe was, oh, you've got a match, you've got a match, you've got a match, you've got a match. And we were all just like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just so totally different an experience. Yeah. Whereas any, any like most female friends that I, I have who have made accounts on Tinder or Hinge, I've just been like, oh, I've got 143 matches today. I'm just like, wow, incredible. <laughs> yeah. Rob Henderson talks about, um, uh, he, he's um, written a substack on dating apps and he talks about a friend who a very attractive male friend who was one of an early adopter of Tinder mm. 
and had 21,000 women match with him over a period of some years. So much so that Tinder identified him as being like a stellar user and they gave him perks, which then meant that he accumulated even more. Um, In contrast to another friend who wasn't that bad looking, but was kind of bit below average he had seven in the same period (laughs) so the inequality is amazing i've read that if you if tinder was um a nation state and you're assessing it's like inequality it would be one of the most unequal countries in the world Oh, only yeah. fans would be the most unequal country in the world because only because only fans creators are also subject to the kind of Pareto law and a minority of OnlyFans creators basically taking all the money mm. and the, the the median OnlyFans creator has 30 subscribers. Hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like the conclusion there is like, uh, unless you are top 10, 10% alpha male, um, then you're unlikely to have a great time on dating apps. Yeah. I think it's and broadly that experience. And I think yeah. in general, I, I, I think that applies to other things too. I mean, so I guess... Something like porn. I mean, so some men would say that um, the fact that you now have copious availability of porn on every platform going um, and that there isn't nearly as much stigma associated with it as there has been historically is great. I don't know, though, if I think actually there's an increasing feeling among men that actually porn is bad for men. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, men's men's uh, personal development YouTube channels that are recently peddling this narrative of like porn is really bad. Delete all the porn. Like stop spending yeah, all your time yeah. on yeah. Yeah, and no fat <laughs> just becomes more and more influential with time. Mm. Um, so I think that even though you know the the argument I'm making in the book is is counter to this that the argument I'm taking aim at is the idea that the sexual revolution has been fabulous for women and it was all about freeing women. I don't think that's true. I think that it's been much more to the benefit of Hugh Hefner than Marilyn Monroe, right? But it's also not the case that the sexual revolution has been consistently amazing for men. Mm. I think the sexual revolution has been good for a minority of men who are able to enjoy its fruits, you know? But even then, I think it has a shelf life. I think it's probably really good fun to be the man with 21,000 matches on Tinder when you're in your 20s and 30s. You're not going to have that in your 70s, though. Mm. And I think that if you make the decision to just sleep around and not ever um, get married, not ever have children and so on, that might be great for a period when you're young. I think you will regret it later, though, generally. So I would say that even Hugh Hefner had a grand old time, you know, in his prime, but he, he ended up being a pretty pathetic figure by the end. So Yeah, someone in the yeah. 70s having lots of... It's just a just a little you know it's, it's just kind of pathetic yeah. isn't it yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly what was the story with Aziz Ansari and how do we land at the idea of that consent is not enough uh so Aziz Ansari is a actor comedian and he um he was at the center of a me too scandal which attracted a lot of attention I think because it was a particularly sort of controversial example which means that people people love talking about controversy so I think that's why it became prominent um he went for a date with a woman who um they went back to his house afterwards she, he kind of subtly pressured her into sex she didn't she he wasn't violent or forceful at all she didn't say no but equally she wasn't really into it and he sort of 
persisted in trying to persuade her even when she was lukewarm and they ended up having sex and then later and then she went home she, I think she texted him later and said something like that was weird and he said sorry something along those lines and then sometime later she wrote an anonymous account or a pseudonymous account of what had gone on and it became the source of controversy because the question was whether or not she had really consented to the sex I think reading her account that it's clear that she did consent in a legal sense in that Ansari jumped the legal bar. The legal bar, however, is very low. I think that the, the, the reason that she was distressed and the reason a lot of women identified with her account in relation to their own experiences is because he, he behaved legally, but he, not like a gentleman, right? Mm. But she, she, that kind of vocabulary is so old-fashioned it's so unfamiliar to anyone who's kind of operating a liberal feminist framework. She couldn't use words like ungentlemanly or chivalry, or even I think words like respect or, or dignity, you know, words like these are a little bit kind of, mm. so she talked about consent and everyone else talked about consent and that became the subject of discussion because that was the only vocabulary left available. I think that the consent, I think that the, the focus on consent as the sole framework for determining whether or not sexual behavior and good is bad is good or bad is completely inadequate. There are so many, there is so much gray area between good sex and consensual sex. Hmm. I guess sort of consent is this sort of legal bar. Yeah. But then we're saying Fair that there, beyond that, there is actually a moral, gentlemanly, chivalrous, respectable, dignified bar. Exactly. And you're not allowed to talk about that because that's just, it just feels a bit weird. Like, why would you bring up like gentlemanliness that harks yes. back to the eras of, I don't know, the 1900s or something? Yes. Um, yes. And therefore, when trying to critique Aziz Ansari's behavior or otherwise, if the only word you're allowed to use is consent, it means that everything just is like, okay, the people who are like pro Aziz Ansari, the only thing they're arguing about is, was it consent? Yeah. To which the answer is probably yes, but like yeah. kind of gray area, but probably yes. The people who are anti-Aziz and sorry are like, was it consent? To which they think the answer is probably no, but like gray area, but probably no. And yes. consent becomes the battleground by which all of these things yes. are, are figured out. And I think we're all talking past, past each other by doing mm. that. Because actually, I don't think consent is the source of dispute. I think the, the, the source of dispute is whether or not he behaved morally, to which I think the answer is no. He did also behave normally. Right, like this is a completely standard style of encounter. I mean, that was part of the reason why it, it was so widely publicised because a lot of women can it resonated with them. They'd had those kind of experiences where you know, because the expectation, particularly because he's famous, she's not famous. You know, the the expectation was that she would put out on a first date because that's normal, and she didn't really want to, but she also didn't really have the confidence to assert her reluctance mm. which is why she kind of went along with it and I, I think and I think it's a really good example of the fact that understanding this solely in terms of individual decision making just doesn't quite work because we're all functioning in an environment where where there are paths of least resistance which are determined by the culture and if the path of least resistance when you go on a date with a celebrity is to put out on a, on a first date then of course that is the direction in which you're going to be pushed even if you don't really want to but again how do you talk about that in terms of consent like it's just it's a completely inadequate framework yeah yeah one of the um one of the passages that you quote uh, quote in the book uh, i think it's um this this girl who had a consensual sexual encounter um but didn't really feel great about it mm -hmm. and tried to convince herself that it's it's just sex yeah and i think that phrase it's just sex um yeah. highlights a lot of what yeah what's what's going on there 
Yeah. So this is a um, an anonymous, I think, Me Too contribution for a woman who had had he'd had sex with a guy who actually, you know, she fancied him. There was no coercion involved. Like it was kind of fine. It also was left her feeling dreadful. And I think often, I think that was often actually the case with a lot of Me Too stories. I mean, some of the Me Too stories were straightforwardly criminal, but not necessarily. Like a lot of them were to do with having kind of sex that was sort of fine and and was supposed to feel okay according to what's considered normal. Um, but women felt terrible about it and mm. they didn't quite know why they felt terrible and it was difficult to articulate. And often the way of resolving that feeling was to talk about, was to suggest that somehow consent had been absent and that the man in question had had not respected consent in some way. Rather than, you know, as we were saying, to say that he had behaved in an ungentlemanly way, or moreover, to say that actually maybe there is something wrong in general with the norms. Maybe, maybe the whole expectation that women will be having emotionless sex is setting women up to fail, and that we shouldn't be surprised to discover that women are feeling terrible after having sex that actually is basically not suited to their self interest. I mean, particularly when you, you think of it in terms of the physical imbalances, like the whole hookup culture setup is grossly unfair. The fact that you've got women are the ones who have to worry about pregnancy. Women are the ones who have to worry about hormonal birth control. Women are the ones who are at risk of violence. Women are the ones who are much less likely to want casual sex, much less, much less likely to seek it out. Women orgasm a lot less than men do. Like every, in every possible way, like women end up on the losing side of this arrangement. So why is it being normalized? I mean, my argument is it's not, it's not feminist in the least. And I, I suspect as well that the reason that it's been normalized as it has is partly to do with ideology, it's partly to do with sexual disenchantment, it's, it all feeds back into liberal feminism and, and liberalism in general, which is sort of invested in seeing us as atomized individuals who are basically indistinguishable from each other in terms of sex. I think also part of what's going on is to do with this hypergamy thing. It's the fact that women are competing generally for the most attractive men, that it's the 10% of men who are getting most of the offers of sex and it does mean that those men have an amazing amount of power in the dating market and whereas previously in a monogamous marriage system they would get married and they'd remove themselves from the dating market now they are like they can basically live an informal polygamy um which isn't actually codified in law but like that's that's basically what they're living which means that they can demand from women the kind of sex they like which is casual, pornified, et cetera, et cetera. And so women feel like they have no choice because if you know, if, if you if if you don't put out, someone else will. Hmm. And I think often it's easier to resolve that feeling. You know, it's not difficult to find women who will say that they like this, that they find it empowering, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think the reason for that though is because it's a much, much more appetizing kind of narrative for what's going on you don't want to think of yourself as being someone who's just been kind of funneled into dysfunctional styles of of sexuality and behavior it's much better to think of yourself as being an agent um and of, there will be examples where that's true but equally i know so many women who have lived like that as younger women and then and later have changed their minds and thought actually i was i wasn't doing that for good reasons i was i was pressured in you know various ways um Bridget Fittese, who's an um, American podcaster, a comedian, she 
I spoke I spoke on her podcast and she read the book and she she wrote an essay about it last week actually called I regret being a slut because Bridget used to work for Playboy as a writer um and um very much lived this like sexual disenchantment life of having lots of casual hookups um and now says she said that she opened the first page of my book and just burst into tears because she she completely recognized that mindset of sort of persuading yourself that this is good even if it feels wrong mm. this is one of the disputes i had with ayla in the unheard interview because her emphasis and like i get it on a rational level is that some people are well suited to this kind of casual relationship some people aren't the task is to work out which category you're in and to like carefully examine your own responses which is fine and i'm sure for some people that works the problem is that human beings are amazingly good at self-deception <laughs> and if the and if the and if the high status thing to be is the woman who likes the casual style of sex then of course you're going to sort of you have an interest in like assigning yourself to that category and ignoring the extent to which you you feel differently of course it used to be the flip side right it used to be that women the pressure was on women not to have premarital sex and women who actually wanted to would have suppressed that feeling in themselves but this is the this is the power of culture mm. so presumably you're not advocating a return to pre-1950s morality where there is a clear you, you know the the vehicle of shame is used strongly against women to disincentivize multiple partners and casual relationships as it is with men, but like less so. Mm. Um, presumably that's that's not what we're trying to get to. No. Yeah. And actually I do worry a bit that the, um, I think that there's a correction happening now uh, or starting to happen in that the, the kind of sexual hyper-liberalism has swung so far in the other, in one direction. I think that there is starting to be a swing back and there's starting to be a reaction against it, particularly mm. among Gen Z. You hear a lot more kind of criticism of sex positivism on things like yeah. TikTok. And I do worry a bit that that could take the form of slut shaming. And that say women who went on OnlyFans in like the great OnlyFans Fest of 2020 <laughs> are going to really pay the price later. I don't want that to happen. I really, I really sincerely don't. I don't think that the, it's kind of like with the Nordic model. I don't think that the mechanism for um, change should be directed at criminalizing or, or, or shaming women who've actually been taken advantage of i think i think i want my shame to be directed at the playboys <laughs> the problem is that that obviously on like a societal scale is quite hard to coordinate yeah hmm we'll come to your action points uh in <laughs> in just a moment um i'd love to talk a little bit uh i'd love to talk is a bit of a, a way to turn a phrase um about sexual assault and sexual mm -hmm. violence mm -hmm. and i wonder if we can start with kind of your background in this because i know that you had, have a background in this I, yeah, so my first job out of university was working in a rape crisis centre. What does a rape crisis centre do? Center do? Uh, it depends on the centre, but generally um, uh, a h emotional support helpline, um, helping victims through the criminal justice process, mm. providing therapy to victims and things like support groups and so on. My job specifically was doing one-to-one -one support with teenage girls. And I also did... Um, consent workshops in schools and trained helpline volunteers. Oh. What prompted you to go into this career path or this job after university? Uh, I, was, I was volunteering on it um, at university and then a job came up. 
and I had actually intended to just stay in the charity sector, mm. but then I sort of became a journalist by accident a little yeah. bit. So here I am. So what was your experience in this rape crisis center? Uh, I found the, cause I did, um, when I started volunteering there, I was doing a degree in women's studies and I found the distinction between like the theory, feminist theory and feminist reality, extremely jarring. Okay. Um, how so? Things like the course that we did on introduction to feminist philosophy had so little in it about, very little in it really about violence or biology, um, almost nothing about motherhood. It was all this kind of angels dancing on the head of a pin stuff about defining women and gender presentation and all this kind of stuff. And I've always just felt like I don't really care about things like lipstick and drag and I don't know, all this performance stuff. It just doesn't seem to be very important to me. Whereas um, what you see on the ground in frontline feminist um, services, um, like an amazing proportion, for instance, I did not know this before I saw it on the ground, an amazing proportion of child sexual abuse is committed by stepfathers. Hmm. So much, which is something that evolutionary biologists have paid close attention to. So a step-parent is about a hundred times more likely to abuse a child than a biological parent. It's called the Cinderella effect. And the theory is that it's because they don't have any biological investment in the child. And actually, if anything, the child might be a, com a threat and a competitor within the household um, because they, you know, monopolize the resources of the new partner. Yeah. Yeah, there's that quote from, I think, Stephen Pinker that you cite in the book. Can you remember what that, what that was? I think he says something like it's the, it's the single most, the single clearest determinant ever found yeah. for predicting child abuse. Yeah, which just feels like, I mean, someone listening to that is going to think, oh, but like. I know a step parent who's amazing. Exactly. Yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah agreed. Um, there are loads of exceptions. We're talking about minority, but it is also very apparent on paper the extent to which it raises the risk. Okay. So it sounds like one of the things you, you, you learned working in the Rape Crisis Center was difference between kind of feminist theory and, and kind of reality on the ground. Yeah. Step parents abusing their children being, way more. Yeah, I mean, one example. Also, just the youth of victims. The modal rape victim is 15. 15? Yeah. Surprisingly young, right? That's surprisingly young, yeah. Yeah. And the proportion of female rape victims who are over the age of 30 is in the single digits. So basically, your period of risk is from adolescence to 20s. Surprisingly young. It does kind of, it, like, it kind of makes sense, actually, with the sort of, the stereotype. I mean, all stereotypes are kind of based in truth. That's why they become stereotypes. And, but it's not, but it doesn't really make sense within the more academic explanation for rape, which puts much more emphasis on um, power and socialization and patriarchy and all these kind of social forces, rather than thinking about possible biological origins of sexual violence like if you the age of the age of rape victims matches perfectly with the age of um attractiveness to men of women right teens and 20s like that's why porn is all women in their teens and 20s right that's why teen is consistently the most popular category is because it's associated with fertility like, and, and if 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 you think that the motivation for rape has nothing to do with sexual desire, that it's about um, violence and control and power, that doesn't really make sense. But I think if you if you recognise that actually sexual desire is in there too, then it does. 
And so I think that I think what happened in my thinking is that seeing, noticing these things, noticing these trends and things like demographics made me think, hang on, I don't think the full story is is there in the academic feminist explanations for this phenomenon. Mm. Yeah. And and so you mentioned, so I, I remember when I was, again, when I was in my sort of undergrad, undergrad years, um, around 2013-ish was when rape culture started becoming a I thing suppose, that people yeah. talked about. Yeah. And within a period of like a few months, it seemed like every college and every university society was putting on sexual consent workshops, mm-hmm. which were always a little bit of a, like a, the the impression I got was that people felt that they were a bit pointless, but like no one wanted to say that they felt that they were a bit pointless because I mean, obviously there was an epidemic like of exactly obviously yeah. you know there was this epidemic of like rape <laughs> yeah. going amongst college campuses apparently especially in the US but like also apparently in the UK yeah every woman you would speak to has had some kind of experience of sexual violence yeah. every man you speak to says hey all my friends are gentlemen like they wouldn't act like that clearly there's a difference clearly there's there's something going on yes so you said that you ran sexual consent workshops at schools rather than university but okay. it's much the same thing yeah what, what um, what's going on there i mean i think that they are fine i don't i think that um i think it's good for institutions to do them i also don't think they do what people think they do generally because what people think they do is they educate would-be rapists you know they that like the the idea being, I suppose that um, rapists don't know it's wrong, or they don't know that what they're doing is rape, or that there's some sort of like information gap that needs to be bridged. Then it's not normally phrased like that because when you phrase it like that, it sounds really stupid. It is really stupid. I think that what consent workshops actually do is they um, they provide signposting for victims. You say if this happens to you, this is what you do. They um, they make it clear to victims what the law is and when things that have been done to them, like that they're allowed to object, they're allowed to go to the police, etc. And I think it's also useful in an institution to make certain boundaries very clear. So, for instance, I think it is good for schools to tell kids that if they share revenge porn, there will be disciplinary consequences because then if they do, they can't claim that they didn't know. Right, fine. So I think all this stuff is good. The problem is I think that... Um, Sex uh, rape is not a consequence of misinformation or misunderstanding generally. I think it is a consequence of sexual aggression combined with opportunity, right? And one of the things about universities, I mean, there's actually evidence to suggest that women who are at universities are, are less at risk of sexual violence than women who aren't if you adjust for age. So the idea that campuses are like uniquely um, infused with rape culture doesn't really seem to match up with the data. It's also, though, the case that, um, you know, there are certain environments, to some extent, found on university campuses, but also elsewhere, which are provide a lot of opportunities for would-be rapists. Like, for instance, environment with loads and loads of drunk women is like the perfect environment if you are sexually predatory and you're looking for, you're looking for victims. Yeah. So one argument that I've heard is that this idea of sexual assault and rape being uh, sort of violent, aggressive men finding a woman in an alleyway or in a club is not actually the majority of rape. The majority of rape happens within relationships or within families. Like, I don't, I don't know the data on this. To, to um, what extent does that hold true in your So the most common 
type of perpetrator is an acquaintance. Um, it is true that boyfriends and ex-boyfriends, particularly ex-boyfriends, um, are also very common perpetrators. And it is also true that sexual violence within families is more common than I think anyone really wants to admit. Mm. Um, so there are, yeah, there are a lot of different circumstances and it's true that the violent rape in an alleyway is a minority of cases. I mean, stranger rape in general, I think it's like less than 5%. I can't remember exactly the figures, but stranger rape is quite unusual. Um, although women have a very intense fear of it. It's, you know, it motivates a lot of um, uh, safety work that women do when they're out. But yeah, it is less common than something like an acquaintance. I guess if we if we put those situations aside and we th if we and we then think about the college campus, yeah. where like clearly there's this I want to say gray area, but like depending on what side, like depending on your perspective, it's not it's not particularly gray. It is just black and white between women having essentially being sexually assaulted by dudes in a college campus. And it seems like telling women to not drink alcohol <laughs> uh, feels like profoundly victim-blaming-y. Yeah. And one of your um, kind of conclusion conclusion points at the end of the book where essentially the, the, the chapter is entitled uh, Listen to Your Mother mm -hmm. is, um, you know, the... The idea of get drunk or high in private and with female friends rather than in public or in mixed company. Yeah. <laughs> now, when we were kind of doing research for this for this podcast, like this was a point where you, you know I just I I've, I've been discussing this book with loads of friends over the last like several several weeks since I since I first came across it. This idea of it sounds like Louise Perry is saying that the solution to sex uh, to male sexual violence is to tell women to stop drinking, mm -hmm. which feels like not the right answer somehow. So like what's... It's what... probably the most controversial line in the book. Of yeah. a book that has got a controversial stuff in it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't say women shouldn't drink. I say women shouldn't get drunk. Around men, they don't know. Okay. So that is slightly different. But I, yeah, I know that's really countercultural. I completely agree. It wasn't countercultural until, you know, 1980s, 1990s. That wasn't considered countercultural. Um, I think Ladek culture has had quite a lasting influence in terms of um valorizing women drinking like men and getting like blind drunk in public um i mean it's one of those things where i think i am very sensitive to the victim blaming risk and i and i and part of the part of the reason for low prosecution rates of sexual violence is to do with rape myths being embedded in the criminal justice system there are a lot of other reasons too but that is one of them um and so we, you know, we do have to be sensitive to that. And I'm, and I say completely unequivocally that a man who rapes a drunk woman is the only person at fault in that scenario. Having said that, in practice, this is what we tell our friends. This is what we tell our sisters and our mums tell their daughters, right? In practice, everyone knows that it's not a very good idea to, to incapacitate yourself when you're around men that you can't necessarily trust. The problem is just that it's not, you're not supposed to say it, not publicly. You say it to people in private. You don't say it publicly. And I think the problem with not saying it publicly is that um, not all young women do have people who will tell them in private. There's a certain hypocrisy there, I think. Hypocrisy as in? In that you can privately as a feminist choose not to get really drunk and you can tell 
your loved ones to do the same thing, but you can't advertise it as a as a guideline. You have to you have to say publicly. Well, no, of course, women should be able to behave as men do, and of course, they should. You know, this this naturalistic fallacy. Like, of course, it should be possible for women to do to do anything in public and to be completely safe from predators. But the fact is that they're not. And I think that any kind of norm which encourages women to behave in a way that will will result in lives being ruined by sexual violence, I just think it's dishonest. So I felt I, I felt I needed to say it even though I knew that it would get backlash because it's true. And I think that everyone does actually know that it's true. It's like with sexual disenchantment, you know. There's the, there's the rhetorical level where you say, you should be able to do whatever you want and sex is like playing squash and then there's how people behave and the gap i think shows us exactly how how true the rhetoric really is do you think like what would our kind of steel man feminist say uh is is the is like a good reason why we don't have this rhetoric in 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 public because um men will hear it and they will conclude that it is the drunk women are asking for it and jury members will hear it and will conclude that um, drunk women are asking for it and that it will feed into these um, negative stereotypes around rape victims. And I agree that that is a risk, but I also think that there are trade-offs involved, which are really difficult. This was an area in which, and I just, did, I just didn't have the... The vocabulary or like education or just like understanding to uh, to actually fully appreciate the, the the different sides of the debate because every woman that i spoke to about this book and about the fact we were doing this interview and sort of you know the people who who read it or looked at the the headlines that said basically lewis perry's advocating don't drink around men broadly to kind of simplify yeah. it we're just like yeah i mean like we all we all know this like yes. we all tell our friends we all tell our daughters we all like like everyone knows this to be the case yeah but it felt like there was something damaging about about, saying about actually saying it out loud yeah. and i guess that's this fear of well it just feeds further into the, like it's already hard enough to get um convictions for rape yeah does encourage does putting a line like this in print actually contribute to this potentially getting worse for women i also think that it's much more important to prevent sexual violence than than successfully prosecute it right if given the choice it's so, really hard to prosecute sexual violence. i mean for, for a whole bunch of reasons some of which is to do with problems in the criminal justice system but some of which is just to do with the nature of the act like mm -hmm. if 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 the line between illegal and legal sex is entirely based on what happens between two people in a room with no witnesses it is just very very difficult to prove the presence or absence of consent so i think that we're never going to have 100 percent prosecution rate no matter how good the system is mm. which means i think that it's more important to try and you know if you do a poster campaign saying rape is bad you shouldn't rape you're going to prevent precisely zero rapes because that's not what's that's not what's motivating rapists right whereas um you know a, a style of post campaign that police forces occasionally release and which is often gets feminist backlash is things like look out for your friends in public if you're out drinking make sure you know where they are make sure you, they get home safely in a taxi and it often gets criticized in the post campaigns even get withdrawn because of feminist criticism but i think you know Yes, maybe it's the case that women know this already and they're already doing this. Maybe not. I mean, teenage girls are 
pretty stupid sometimes. Teenage boys are pretty stupid sometimes. Like this is just the nature of being inexperienced and not having not having already learned it. I mean, I dedicated the book to the women who learned it the hard way because I think that the the, the current setup is kind of all around these slightly unspoken truths and the the existence of these differences, which we kind of know about, we don't talk about, you know, the fact that men have two modes of sexuality, right? The, the fact that men will 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 treat women as if they're really cheap, if given the opportunity, the fact that getting really drunk around strange men is risky, all this stuff that is true and we all kind of adults know, but we don't necessarily say it and we don't necessarily tell young people. And so you have to go through that process of discovering it for yourself and you. And I think the problem is that there will be girls in particular who during that process of discovering it for themselves get really unlucky. There was a common refrain when I was at university, which is don't tell women how to dress, teach men not to rape. Yeah. Um, which I think was trying to get at the frustration with saying, hey, look, men are just trash or 10, 5 to 10% of men are just trash anyway. So like girls, watch out for yourselves. It's like, why should we have to do that? Why should we have to say that? Like, the yeah. problem is clearly with the men and not with the women. Yep. Um, Morally, yeah. that's completely correct. Morally. Yeah. It's just in practice that it's difficult. I mean, I think the, the how people dress thing is a little bit of a canard. I'm not really aware of there actually being that strong a correlation between what women wear and their likelihood of being assaulted. As far as I know, it, it's not. No, the length get, of your yeah. skirt isn't isn't very relevant. Um, I think what's much more relevant is is basically ending up in scenarios where that five to ten percent of bad guys have an opportunity. So, like the example that I give in the book is um, of um, a dating advice column in the Times, where a woman's written in saying. Um, I'm interested in BDSM. I want to give it a go. What shall I do? And the reply is basically, well, obviously, you know, consent is very important and men have to respect your consent given. Therefore, what you should do is you should go on the internet and you should advertise the fact that you really want to be strangled. And then you should invite men to contact you and then you should go to their house and have consensual strangling sex together. And, you know, it's incumbent on them to respect your consent. And I'm like, yes, it is incumbent on them to respect your consent. However, what do you think is going to happen if you go on the internet and say, I really fancy a strange man strangling me in his house? Like, I just, it just, the like, the impracticality of that kind of politics drives me round the, round the bend, Mm. you know? Because I'm like, I, I agree that it should be possible. I mean, it should be possible for us to do all sorts of things without, like, having to protect against bad actors. But it seems like it's only in this area where we we basically insist that young women should fake it till they make it. Fake it till they make it, as in? They should behave as if there are no bad actors because they have a right to behave as if there are no bad actors in yeah. the hope that down the line there won't be any more and men will all be taught not to rape and then it will be safe. Yeah. But you can't just like... <laughs> Sacrifice the bodies of these. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, one, of, uh, one of my friends who looked at your, uh, the, the, the final Listen to Your Mother chapter mm-hmm. kind of described this um, 
said that it's 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 it sounded like the advice is quite defeatist and not particularly empowering to women. Yeah. I wonder what would be your response to, to that. Yeah, defeatist is sometimes the expression I've heard. Um heteropessimism is a term I've heard as well. Heteropessimism. Heteropessimism. I mean basically just I think that there has been I think that there is increasingly a feeling um among feminists of all stripes and men and women of all stripes that like there is something wrong with the sexual culture that people aren't very happy. Um, men and women that sexual violence has not gone away by any means and maybe the the whole kind of freedom experiment hasn't worked out very well and I think that the the very utopian style of thinking in the second wave the idea that we can tear down the family and we can kind of re-socialize everyone and, and and live in like new experimental ways I think was very very valiant and very interesting, but also pretty much failed utterly. And I think that the point that we've, well, the point that I've got to at least in thinking about all of this stuff over so many years is to think, look, I think that, I think that actually what we're faced with is a much more difficult challenge than we might previously have recognized. I think that some of this stuff is baked in to an alarming degree. It doesn't mean it's hopeless, but it does, I think, mean that we have to be kind of working around reality rather than trying to redesign society on the back of an envelope which mm. also means that if we're looking for systems that seem to be more or less protective and produce more or less good and bad outcomes what we have to choose from is not the status quo and some like imagined perfect alternative what we actually have to choose from is the status quo and other alternatives that have been tried and tested in previous times and places because those are ones that have actually worked like if you're imagining a utopian system that no one has ever tried before, there's probably a reason for that. It's probably because it's not actually possible. Um, can I take a quick tangent before we come back to the action points? Yes. Um, another particularly controversial thing that you say in the book uh, is that uh, basically, and f- feel free to correct my paraphrasing, but all BDSM is basically bad. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was on a I was in a group holiday with some friends a few days ago, and we were talking about the book because because we, we were doing this interview. And they were all like, oh, come on, like, you know, I can be a totally nice guy, uh, but, you know, still have some, like, you know, it's, it's it's consensual and, like, BDSM is a thing and, like, clearly I'm into it and she's into it and it's, like, sometimes we swap roles and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it felt particularly controversial to say, like, yeah, Louis' position seems to be that, like, actually, Just it, it's, 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 it's always bad. So what's, yeah. what's going on there? Um, I mean, I think it's bad at several different levels. Yeah. Um, I work for a campaign group called We Can't Consent to This. Um, What we do is we document cases where um, women have been killed in the UK, UK women have been killed, and their killers have claimed in court that they consented to violence, which they consented to the violence which led to their deaths. So like the sex game gone wrong defense. The reason that um, my friend and colleague Fiona McKenzie founded the campaign is because she'd noticed that this was becoming something you'd see in the papers more, more often. And so she went away and actually documented how often this defense strategy was being used and found that it was becoming more frequent and also that it was being used often with success so men were able to it's always been men who've used this defense we've never found an example of a woman using it um they're able to get to get away with a manslaughter conviction rather than a murder conviction or able to get a very short sentence you know it's like three years or something right for taking a woman's life this is what we're talking about and the problem with this defense is that the the woman isn't there to give her side of it necessarily and very often what you're talking about in these cases is like 
a man who's picked a prostitute, a man who seems to have had like a long-term abusive relationship with his girlfriend, um, you know, all sorts of scenarios which actually look indistinguishable from just like normal femicide, but they're able in retrospect to spin this narrative and say, well, she was asking for it. And she can't, she can't say otherwise. And the fact is with BDSM that actually that is what it looks like from the outside. There is no way of telling without knowing what's going on in people's minds that this is, whether this is domestic violence or whether this is consensual BDSM. They look identical. And from a, from a legal perspective, that's very difficult. How are you supposed to tell the difference? One of the cases I talk about in the book, which is an important piece of English case law, Emmett, involves a woman who suffered terrible injuries inflicted by her husband, went to the doctor because she needed treatment and the doctor very unusually violated patient confidentiality and reported this to the police. When it came to court, she refused to testify either way. Her husband claimed that she'd consented to it as part of sex and the court believed him. And I think maybe that's true my spidey senses tell me that it that it isn't right. Like what's actually going on there is domestic abuse. And the nature of domestic abuse is such that women or any victim of domestic abuse, male or female, will often say that they consent to things and will often be, you know, lulled into a false narrative spun by the abuser because that's the nature of psychological abuse, that it wears you down and that it and that it, that it um, dissuades you from leaving or from objecting, or from, you know, the psychological component of domestic abuse is just as just as, um, just as pernicious and just as dangerous as the physical element. And I think that this is the problem that you get to with BDSM. I mean, I, I, I can accept in theory that there are people who genuinely do it with absolute consent and are entirely responsible and there is really no harm done to anyone involved. But also in practice, there are so many people you can find who have been previously part of, you know, the BDSM community and have had terrible experiences and will say in retrospect that they were taken advantage of, that they, you know, that they, that there was mental illness at play often, that there are like varying degrees of coercion and abuse that are often quite subtle. And this is, and I think that the more that this is normalized and made mainstream, the more incidences like that you come up with I mean so something like choking for instance which is now 20 years ago was really niche it was a niche within the BDSM community I mean like responsible BDSM practitioners will say that that choking is actually really dangerous and you shouldn't mess around with it um and yet now it's on the front page of every porn platform in the world it's completely mainstream you've got I can't remember the numbers exactly but it's something like half of women in their 20s will say that they've been choked by a partner at some point you know and some of those women are consenting some of them not but that's what's going to happen if you make it a really mainstream thing Hmm. you're going to end up with this being like a routine part of sex and once something is part of the sexual script like it's considered to be a normal a normal thing then the default setting is to do it the default setting is to say yes even if you're not sure Hmm. And actually it makes you feel bad. And I think as well that it, I would say as well for for men who do it, men who are asked to do it by their partners. I mean, that's something that I hear often, you know, but my girlfriend asked me to choke her. I'd say, I mean, her motivation for being asked to choke, I mean, it's partly to do with the fact that um, a lot of women do 
are are turned on by like a bit of submission right that's very common it probably has something to do with evolution <laughs> like it's it's much much more common for women to take the sub role than the dom role in any kind of BDSM scenario and vice versa with men um I don't think that's necessarily a very like I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing we have to dissuade people from doing but I also think that like choking is a really bad manifestation of that instinct it's like a particularly um particularly aggressive and particularly risky thing to do it's difficult to kill someone accidentally through choking insects but it is quite easy to injure someone Mm. and in general it's just not something you want to be encouraging it's an extremely gendered form of violence it's the second most common form of murder used by men against women in this country and overwhelmingly victims of non-fatal strangulation it's in domestic um relationships it's female victims male perpetrators right so like it's just it's not good news and the problem with normalizing it is that I think as well for men, it like it reinscribes dysfunctional arousal patterns, if that makes sense, which is I think a problem with porn as well. I think this idea that like our sexual desires are fixed in quality and quantity and what you have to do is just like siphon off your sexual energy in a like periodically. I think that's wrong. I think actually we need to understand this as being like a feedback loop. Um, I mean, I don't mean feedback loop, right? This is being reinforced by orgasm. And if you are like, if you are um, inscribing in your own mind the fact that choking is your thing, choking turns you on, you're going to like want more and more of it. You're going to end up going down an increasingly dysfunctional road. This is one of the reasons why men using porn often ends up being really bad for the men even though I think porn has other problems but you know just in terms of the user experience is because you end up like your sexual desires become weirder and weirder because you're exposed to weirder stuff Mm. and you kind of reward the stimulus and you end up potentially going down a really like grim road Mm. which the porn platforms are perfectly designed to encourage yeah there's a thing that you say here of, um, you know, I think this one is particularly uncontroversial. Chivalry is actually a good thing. We all have to control our sexual desires and men particularly so, given their greater physical strength and have uh, average higher sex drives. Um, then the point after that is sometimes, though not always, you can readily spot sexually aggressive men. There are a handful of personality traits that are common to them. Impulsivity, promiscuity, hypermasculinity, and disagreeableness. These traits and combination should put you on your guard. Hmm. I wonder if you can just kind of elaborate elaborate on that what did like how i I guess how typecast is the sexual offender sexual assaulter kind of vibe um so that combination of traits i think comes quite clearly from the literature looking at um sex men is in prison and how they tend to differ from the general population Hmm. and those traits are more likely to be found in sex offenders in prison obviously you're not going to be quite representative of sex offenders because only about 1% of sex offenders go to prison. Um, so they're not going to be perfectly representative. But it does suggest that there is a there is a trend yeah. in that regard. So one of the one of the interesting things I thought about that list, mm. hypermasculinity, disagreeableness, impulsivity, um, maybe not promiscuity, uh, but at least but certainly those three uh sort of s- seem 
somewhat similar to kind of the dark triad traits that yeah. people talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, dark triad traits are a great predictor of sexual aggression. Yeah, which yeah. seem to be particularly attractive to particularly younger women. Yeah. And so it seems like we have this weird... It's a bit unfortunate. Yes. <laughs> yes. What's, what's going on there? Um, yeah, I don't know why they would be, but yes, it does appear to be the case that some dark triad traits can improve your prospects on the dating market. Um, I guess in terms of being you're effective at manipulating people, things like that. Yeah. And so I guess if you were giving action points to your daughter or something, it would be a case of even though you might find these men somewhat more attractive. Sometimes, yeah. Then, but actually this is, you know, when you're 18, 19, 17, you don't necessarily know what's good for you. So like, you know, be a little bit careful, please. Is is, Is that the kind of vibe? Yes. I mean, just anecdotally, I don't know about research on this, but, um, I, th- I think that there's a lot of variation between women in terms of how much women are attracted to the dark triad traits. Okay. I personally have never found them attractive, but clearly anecdotally it's the case that some women do like the kind of the bad boy image. And it is a, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a risky combo in terms of the risk of sexual aggression. Mm. One of the, uh, one of the other ones is, uh, and again, somewhat controversial, don't use dating apps. Mutual friends can vet histories and punish bad behavior. Dating apps can't. I totally get the rationale here because mutual friends can indeed vet histories and punish bad behaviors, but dating apps can't. And yet, if we look at the stats, it seems like, you know, the majority of couples are now meeting on dating apps. Yes. Do you actually, are you actually advocating for a blanket ban on dating apps for, or? or oh, I'm not saying ban some, them. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the base, I, I think people probably do mostly agree with me that they're not the, they're not the best way. I think the problem you've got though, is that now people are so, it's so much become the norm. Yeah. That doing anything else is difficult. Although I do have female friends who've like made a conscious decision not to use dating apps because actually it's not worth it. I mean, I've just I've just actually filed an essay on this. Um, and I spoke to loads of friends in depth about their experience of using the apps. And like one friend told me I was really struck by this because she's like super beautiful, super attractive in every possible way, has been on the apps for years and years, still hasn't found a boyfriend. And she said that of 95% of the dates she's been on when she's met via apps have not ended, have not had a second date. Mm. And wow. another friend who said as well that she, she tried the apps, just they weren't working. And then she ended up actually having a relationship with someone who initially she'd seen his photo, who was a mutual friend link. She initially she'd seen his photo and thought, no thanks. And then she met him and was really attracted to him and it worked out really mm. well. And both saying like, I don't think the apps are very good. I mean, they're good in the sense that they give you access to a very wide pool, particularly if you're in London or something like there are so many single people within your vicinity. But in terms of quality... I don't know. And I think also that because, I mean, we spoke about the whole hypergamy problem on the apps, but also the apps do tend to encourage a sort of anonymous vibe, which encourages bad behavior. Um, If you don't have any link to anyone, like there are basically no consequences if you misbehave. Mm. Um, Everything from ghosting through to sexual assault, there are basically no consequences. And so like, I totally get the appeal. And I also totally get the fact that I'm, like happily married it's easy for me to say this i didn't meet my husband via the apps but also that was the period before they were normal um equally though i think like the downsides are pretty stark and again i think particularly for women if you're one of these guys who are getting thousands of (laughs) like matches on tinder it's going to be pretty hard to resist yeah but i guess as women like I, i i mean every single woman that i've ever spoken to has had one or more 
or even more than 10 bad experiences on dating apps. Oh, yeah. Whereas very few men I know would, would have said that they had a bad experience. Because I guess like yeah. kind of worst case scenario for a dude is it's kind of, the date is kind of boring. Right. Worst case scenario for a woman is just like really bad. It's like a serial killer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, you, um, there's this film, I can't remember what it's called. There was this film that came out last year or earlier this year um, that was about um, a woman who meets a guy on a dating app and all, all seems to be going well, but then it turns out he's actually a cannibal serial killer who, like, kills women and sells their meat on the black market. Oh. <laughs> and it's supposed to be a comedy, this film. Yeah. Apparently it's – I have not actually seen the whole thing, but apparently it's, it's like, horrific to watch. But I thought it was really interesting that this – it was female writer, female director. It's very much, like, told from the female perspective. Mm. And I thought it was really interesting that this was, like – what the female imagination collectively was coming up with as like the the film about dating apps because obviously it's everyone it's every woman's worst nightmare but it's also i think expressive of just like a general horror mm. <laughs> when i text when i texted a few my friends earlier this week because i was writing this essay to, to ask for quotes about tinder and because it's the 10th anniversary of tinder oh right yeah i was just like inundated with they're terrible let me list all the like horrible things i've experienced on them yeah so yeah yeah. Um, I guess last thing I'd like to ask you about. So um, you have uh, recently, well, I guess uh, a year and a bit ago, had uh, a baby son. Yeah. Um, and you have like action points for what you would tell your daughter or, uh, but do you, yeah, yeah. do you have any action points for what you would tell your son? How like, you know, how should men behave in the sexual and dating marketplace? As it so it is something that I've not really written about it, but it is something that my husband and I talk about a lot because obviously we our son's a toddler so it's not yet relevant but mm. it's something it's something to think about as a parent i think that um i think that it is really important to channel um like youthful male energy which is which is like a different thing from you know if we're accepting the men and women we're in a different thesis right yeah we're accepting that um men again have, have higher sex drive just generally higher energy aggression all this kind of stuff like you can't suppress that and i don't think you i don't think it's wise to try but you can channel it in positive directions so I, so like one of the things that my husband is personally very keen on is martial arts and um he's done a lot like kickboxing and boxing over the years and he thinks it's very important for boys to do that hmm. like girls too it's fine. I've done a bit of martial arts as well. Like it's good fun. It's good exercise. But he thinks it's really important for boys because it's a way of like taking that instinct towards fighting and being like destructive and energetic and whatever and, and taming it and making it a, po a positive thing. And I think that principle in general is a good one. Yeah. In relation to boys. Nice. Um, I guess uh, there is there is just one thing I want to end with, which is um, in the book. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, you've got this sort of list of four questions uh, that women should ask themselves and that men should oh, ask themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't yeah. know if you can remember them off the top of your head, but I'll. I'll... I kind of crowdsourced them from yeah. people who, from um, friends. Where is it? Ah, oh, here we go. This 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 is a this is a good one. Uh, I did it because people love quizzes. Yeah, people do love quizzes. <laughs> um, so I'll just kind of read this out. Uh, kind of quoting quoting from the book and then i just love for you to kind of riff on these for, yeah. for men and women and yeah. listeners or viewers can answer these questions for themselves <laughs> and uh feel whatever you want to feel um so uh if you're a woman who's had casual sexual relationships with men with men in the past you might try answering the following questions as honestly as you can one 
Did you consider your virginity to be an embarrassing burden you wanted to be rid of? Two, do you ever feel disgusted when you think about uh, consensual sexual experiences you've had in the past? Three, have you ever become emotionally attached to a casual sexual partner and and concealed this this attachment from him? And four, have you ever done something sexually that you found painful or unpleasant and concealed this discomfort from your partner either during sex or afterwards? And he got to say that if your score is zero, then congratulations, your high sociosexuality and good luck have allowed you to successfully navigate a treacherous sex- sexual marketplace. But if you answered yes to any of these questions, as I suspect you probably did, you are entitled to feel angry at a sexual culture that has set you up to fail. Yeah, I guess yeah. Having, having done 50 of these podcast interviews now, how do you, how do you feel about these questions? And This yeah. is actually the first time anyone's brought them up. Because I, I think, yeah, I think those are... I source those questions from talking to lots and lots of friends, um, many of whom had had sort of gone through this journey that I describe of, you know, previously basically like relying on cope in relation to the the like casual sex empowering narrative, um, and then later being like, I can't believe I put up with that. I can't believe <laughs> you know believed all of that. And I think that those questions do sort of drill down into that self-deception factor, Hmm. which is very difficult, where you want to think, I'm doing this for myself. I I sincerely want this. But actually, do you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, one of one of the things when I when I just kind of ran ran these questions by by a few friends is yeah. that like basically the answer from men for all of those questions is just like well obviously not like it's it's yeah, it's, it's just yeah. not even a thing it's not, it's not even a consideration almost yes. and yet it clearly is for like every single female friend that I've run those questions by has always been like oh yeah what's their average score um, they, they didn't say I didn't I didn't okay. want I was just like, like kind of more zero. than yeah not zero okay. <laughs> um, yeah yeah uh, there was there was one you had aha uh-huh. uh, hang on where's the one for men. So the male ones, I yeah, again crowdsourced from, from male friends mm. who were pretty shifty about it, but I, <laughs> yeah, um, I I persuaded them. <laughs> here we go. Um, so you kind of talk about this uh, this situation where it's it's sort of like friends with benefits, and the woman has quote caught feelings for the yeah. man, and, and the man's just knows, like but, he yeah. kind of knows, but he's always seems a bit seems a bit surprised. But like, what really? She 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 caught feelings? What? I had I had no idea. Yes. Um, and you say that. Uh, these men seem to be genuinely bewildered by the fact that the women that they have been having sex with for many months are unhappy in these pseudo-relationships, and the women seem to have drifted into this arrangement, not realizing how little regard their partners really have for them. This is a tragedy of mutual incomprehension. However, I cannot help but harbor a sneaking suspicion that many men, perhaps all, do realize that operating in, quote, CAD mode is not actually harmless. Male readers who have ever had heterosexual casual sex might like to ask themselves these questions, a counterpart to the questions I addressed to female readers earlier in the chapter. One, have you ever had sex with a woman you'd be embarrassed to introduce to your friends? Two, have you ever failed to contact a woman after sex? Three, have you ever suspected that your casual partner was becoming emotionally attached to you and failed either to, uh, and failed either to commit or to break off the relationship? And four, have you ever encouraged a woman to do something sexually, even though she showed reluctance? The answer to all of these questions ought to be no, but a culture of casual sex incentivizes men to do such things, and generally with no social penalty. If anything, men who fuck and chuck, quote, good time only women, can often expect to increase their social status among their male peers, at least in the short term. Yeah. 
what did shifty responses there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots of shifty again, responses non-zero. there yeah again yeah. very much non-zero yeah very much feeling like like again this aziz and sorry situation yeah it's just so ridiculously common yeah that yeah it, it, and i remember when that article came out it was like a real like oh my god moment for like everyone i know who read that article because everyone knew that it was such a common situation mm. and the language of consent was it not appropriate to actually be able to have that conversation? Which was probably yeah. one of the good things to come out of me too, in that I think that there probably were men who were paying attention to it and who maybe were doing this stuff on a mild level who were like, oh man, I'm like, I'm slightly guilty of this. I think the only problem though is that in general, when we're sort of um, trying to appeal to men, in this way, the men who are listening are the ones who are already pretty good. Mm. Like Harvey Weinstein doesn't care, yeah. right? Like he's not listening. Mm. Um, and obviously, there is there is. It's a good thing to nudge men who are like, like well intentioned towards behaving better. But there is an extent to which, like, the guys who are listening and the guys who are already on board. Yeah. What so can well. do? Um, <laughs> anyway. Thank you very much, Louise. This has been Thank wonderful. You so um, much. Any final piece of advice you would give to any young men or women listening to this oh, uh, or I watching mean, this podcast? There's quite a lot in the book. I mean, my uh, that sometimes people ask me what's my like one underlying advice to women, and I think what it is is the problem with sexual, the problem with liberal feminism and sex positive feminism as 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 um, an ideology is that it it really discourages women from listening to their instincts, and if anything, your because the pressure is on you to be open-minded, tolerant, like not to be hung up on like silly traditionalism and all of this kind of stuff, um, that can translate when it's combined with female agreeableness, as we discussed earlier in the show, women more agreeable than men on average. It can translate into just like suppressing feelings of distress and anxiety and trying to train yourself out of those responses. And I think, no, if like, if you're, if your instinctive response is any kind of distress, any ideology that tells you that you shouldn't be listening to that is not a, a good ideology to follow. So huh. I guess that's my like, that's the basis yeah. of all of this. Trust your gut. Listen to your instincts. Trust your gut. Yeah. Don't let society tell you that your gut is in fact wrong. Yeah, pretty much. Nice. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right. So that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.